Hello, everyone. Unfortunately, we must once again begin the show by paying tribute and honoring someone who was very prolific and impactful in the anime industry who sadly has passed away. Shijiro Kobayashi, a veteran art director on anime, passed away on August 25th due to congestive heart failure at the age of 89. Kobayashi had been a longtime art director in anime since the 60s. He started his career in anime after, you know, graduating from Shino Art University, working as an elementary art school teacher for a while, and then joined Toei in 1964, starting his own production company in 1968, just a few years after. And he is responsible for the art direction on so many classic series from the Gutsy Frog all the way to Nonobe Contabil on classics like Mars Doju, The Castle of Cagliostro, Ursayatsura, Beautiful Dreamer. His work has truly elevated and brought to life entire worlds in some of the most iconic and classic anime in the history of the medium. And his contributions cannot be understated. Because truly, like his vision, his like sense of detail really brought those environments, brought the looks of everything he worked on to life in such a vivid, beautiful way. And we really have him to thank for some of the most gorgeous, beautiful looking shows and movies out there. Like again, others include Angel's Egg, the first Berserk TV series. So many titles that are just like beautiful, beautifully drawn in terms of their background, in terms of their looks. Utina, like just, just such vivid art direction on all the things he touched. And yeah, it's just very tragic to have such an incredible talent leave us. But what a legacy, what an incredible body of work that he left behind in all the series that he contributed to in a career spanning four to five decades. It's just, just incredible. You can still check out an interview done with Kobayashi a few years ago on YouTube from the Fred program Toko Toko. And definitely look it up to just see him talk about his craft and see him draw. It's just really, really great stuff. But yeah, we're incredibly sad to hear that this legend of the industry has left us. But we thank him for the work he had done over the years, the art that he put into the world that touched us and we want to pay our respects to him and also give our condolences to his loved ones friends and family and again all the fans deeply touched by his work
This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast, episode 216. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I am Alain Romiaja. Today we have another one of our monthly news catch-up episodes. And there's been a lot of news. We got some civilization updates. We got quite a few licenses news. A lot more compared to last time where we really didn't have any. We have some big industry stuff to talk about. Some shake-ups, some controversies. And most of all, there's been a lot of anime news to talk about. So yeah, there's going to be a lot to cover on the show. Oh, for sure. Yes. Don't be surprised if this turns out to be a longer news episode than the last one. Like you just mentioned, Lum, uh, we definitely have more licenses to talk about. And yeah, I think we're I think we're just going to talk about all of them this time because uh, I think we have time to actually talk about every license this time. I wonder if it'll be like that next month, but we'll see. Um but yeah, I guess uh, we can get right into the news. Um, but actually, before that, I really want to just go ahead and um, let people know that, I mean, first off, I hope everybody has gotten the chance to listen to our Gaku Hote episode that we put up recently, because uh, if you haven't listened to the episode, um, Gaku Hote is easily one of, if not probably the worst manga we've ever read. And so, yeah, I mean, despite that, I think we had a really good discussion with our guest David from the Shonen Flop podcast, and it was a lot of fun, despite the comic that we had to talk about. And um, I really hope everybody's had a chance to listen to it because, uh, man, I don't want to talk about a manga that bad and have nobody listen to it. That would make me sad. Um, and uh, I also want to plug real quick, if you have listened to our Gaku Hote episode, definitely go listen to our latest bonus podcast on the Patreon that should be up by the time you're listening to this at patreon.com slash manga mavericks, uh, where we kind of did a sort of part two of our discussion where uh, we had our good friend Maxion from French Pepper Victory uh, to not only talk about their thoughts on Gaku Hote, uh, kind of go over what we usually do with some of our Jump Stop episodes with, uh, you know, talking about, you know, what's going on with Jump at the time and everything, sort of that environment as well well as the original Gaku Hote one-shot uh, done entirely by Nobuaki Inoki before Takashi Obata came on to do the actual series. Again, it, it was a really interesting discussion. It was it was especially really interesting to like read the original one shot. And yeah, I just thought it was a good discussion. And uh, yeah, if you if you want to hear us talk about Gaku Hote more for some reason, uh, again, you can listen to that over at patreon.com slash mavericks. We hope you go listen to it and enjoy it. Yeah, again, it's longer than the discussion we had with David. It's longer than the main episode. So if you want even more... <laughs> discussion definitely listen to that bonus pod and also listen to it if you want to hear judgmental's judgment on whether or not gakiyote is indeed a bad manga which you know was the trial was put on recess in the main episode where the verdict was uh delayed postponed to the bonus episode so you're gonna need to listen to that to hear the verdict and have the conclusion and the judgment set down and sentenced for sure. Obviously, we're not going to give it away, but um, the answer may surprise you, is is all I will say. See, the th- the, the thrilling conclusion to the Gaku Hote courtroom trial arc, I guess, of Manga Mavericks. Um, again, patreon.com slash Manga Mavericks. Go ahead and listen to that. But yeah, I think we should just get right into news because I think we do have a lot to cover. And we're going to start off with the monthly New York Times graphic books and manga list uh, for September. And uh, just to go from bottom to the top here, at number 15 uh, is a series that I don't think we've seen on this list up until this point with Toilet Bound Hanako-kun Volume 14. And yeah, like I said, I'm pretty sure this is the first time Hanako-kun has been on this list in particular. So that's really cool. And then after that, we have Spy Family Volume 1, ranking at number 14. 
Dragon Ball Super Volume 16, ranking at number 13, One Piece Volume 100, ranking at number 12, Chainsaw Man Volume 1, ranking at number 8, Volume 2 of Spy Family, ranking at number 7, and all the way up at number 1 is Jujutsu Kaisen Volume 17, ranking at number 1. So I'd say I'm, I'm not too surprised about like what's on the list. I'm really glad that like, and we'll talk about this when we get to the book scan list, I'm sure. But um, I'm really happy to see that volume 100 of One Piece is uh, really doing well in particular. Yeah, it's notable because One Piece has been on and off like the book scan list, like sometimes the new volume charts. But volume 100 seems to be doing particularly well, probably because of novelty of the first manga in the U.S. reaching its 100 volumes. So that's a thing that I'm sure that gets a lot of people wanting to go out and buy it and check it out. But yeah, like One Piece Volume 100 doing really, really well. Another interesting surprise is Dragon Ball Super Volume 16 also doing very well. And probably was in large part due to, you know, people being in the Dragon Ball mood from the Dragon Ball Super movie and then wanting to go into the manga. But also it helps that the latest volume of the manga starts the Granola Survivor arc so people can jump in fresh and do arc and people may be very excited about that arc in particular so that's uh interesting to see that do and perform very well and yeah Hanako-kun glad to see it rank on the NYT list for perhaps the first time and similarly I think Jujutsu Kaisen Volume 17 obviously Jujutsu Kaisen is still a popular series but also it being the start of the culling game arc in that volume might also be another motivating factor for its performance you know, being as strong as it is, too. For sure. Um, yeah, I feel like it's been a long time since we've seen One Piece rank on the New York Times list in particular. Like, I remember when um, Viz was doing their big speed up, you know, from the end of Alabasta all the way up to where we were currently. I think we were up to, like, Impel Down Marineford at the time. I think it was definitely before the time skip. I remember when they were releasing, like, five volumes every month for, like, six months, and, like, most of those volumes would end up on the New York Times list. A lot of people were buying One Piece back then. Yeah. It's amazing that they didn't burn out readers or at least burn through their wallets, but it worked out. We don't see One Piece on the New York Times list or really even the bookskin list that often. Yeah. So the again, the performance of Volume 100 is really remarkable, especially when we get into the bookskin list, considering how high it is on that list. So moving on into the books can list, I mean, we have all the like big notables. Similarly, with the New York Times list and the books can list, we have the same number one, right? In Jujutsu Kaisen, volume 17. Again, you know, we have like Nanoya in the career. I think really it's like, you know, the start of the culling game arc. I think that's really, you know, going to push a lot of people to like check out the book and want to, to buy it. Because obviously Shibuya was also an incredibly popular arc, but I feel like a lot of people getting very excited about catching this in the volumes. Obviously, also, Jesus Kaisen is just a hot property right now, so it makes sense. Well, what's what's really cool about the book scan list in particular is that we're bookended by Jujutsu Kaisen because not only is volume 17 at number one, but volume 16 is at number 20, which I think is pretty interesting. Yep, indeed it is. But yes, just to continue with the list, uh, at number two, we have volume 100 of One Piece, which One Piece, I feel like this is the only time that One Piece has been like this high on the book scan list, or at the very least, it's very rare. One Piece has not 
been this high in the time we've been covering it. Never at number two. Yeah. So that really shows you like how many people are going out and getting this. But yes, at number three, we have Dragon Ball Super Volume 16, which Dragon Ball Super, surprising to say because Dragon Ball's, uh, Dragon Ball in general is a very, very, very lucrative property, but I don't think we've even seen Super this high on the list either. No, Super also extremely high. Again, I would assess that Volume 100 did so well because, again, it's the first manga to reach 100 volumes here in the U.S., so it's, it's incredibly noble in that way. And I'm sure people are just excited about One Piece right now in general. You know, so that probably gets a lot of people to check it out. But yeah, Super Volume 16, again, it probably is due in large part to a huge enthusiasm around Dragon Ball in August, thanks to the movie. And also, again, the start of the Granola arc in the manga. It's pretty clean getting into it in Volume 16 there. Oh, you know, uh, going back to One Piece really quickly, um, I kind of wonder if we'll see more One Piece on the list after uh, Film Red comes out over here. Potentially, we'll see how much of a boost that gives it. At the very least, probably in November or around the next one comes out, I could see 101. I mean, at the very least, I think it'll be on the list. We'll see how high up it'll be. Mm-hmm, for sure. Uh, next up, we have Spy Family Volume 2 at number 4, with Volume 1 ranking at number 8. Uh, Spy Family, very high on the list, but I think that is also because uh, the next like core of the anime is coming out, so I'm, I'm assuming we're going to see more Spy Family on the list coming up. I think we'll see a resurgence come this fall for sure when the second core hits. Mm-hmm. And once again, Toilet about Hanako-kun uh, making its way on the list with volume 14 at number five on the list uh, with volume 15 ranking at number 14. Uh, Hanako-kun, I don't know if it's been this high on the list. It might have been before, but I don't remember. I also don't remember off the top of my head. But yeah, again, it's great to see it's performing really, really well. Next one is a bit of a surprise, I think, because we have the 20th anniversary edition of volume one of Bleach ranking at number six, which... Uh, Bleach is another series that I'm really interested in seeing if we'll see it more on the book scan list with that, I guess, final season coming out really soon. Potentially. I mean, yeah, we'll see how much of a bump the final season gives its manga sales. But, you know, the fact that the 20th anniversary edition of the volume performed this well is a good sign of that. So, yeah. I wonder if they'll start doing this kind of thing with their other, like, longer series. Like, I wonder if we'll get, like, an anniversary edition of, like, Naruto or One Piece eventually. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, all that's that different about the 20th anniversary edition is, like, it has, like, a new cover, basically. Like, I bought okay. it at AX and whatnot. No, I bought it at, like, a SCCC and whatnot. So, you know, it's, like, mostly just volume one, but it has, like, kind of new cover, maybe some other small embellishments in the volume. But just that alone, and just the fact that it's a new edition of the manga, got a lot of people to come out and buy it. So, there's potential in re-releases of even manga that have been out for a while. Mm-hmm. Look, if I've learned anything since the announcement of the final season of Bleach, uh, you know, covering the final arc of the manga, it's that people still love Bleach a lot. <laughs> mm-hmm. But yes, uh, next up on the list, we have Volume 1 of Chainsaw Man, ranking at number 7, with Volume 11, ranking at number 13, and Volume 2, ranking at number 18. And, you know, I, I think something in general that I think is interesting about this list is that, like, no one series, like, totally overtakes it. I think it's, like, pretty even as far as, like, the different kinds of series that are on here, or at least different IP or whatever. But uh, Chainsaw Man's the only series on here that has, like, the most out of everything, but still doesn't, like, take up too much of the list. 
Yeah, Chainsaw Man at three volumes has the most representation on the list, which compared to months past where a series may take up like 40% of the list is notable in the amount of different titles on this list. Still very skewed towards Shonen Jump, Shonen series, but yeah, it is it is notable that there is a little more variety in titles at least. Yeah, that, that's what I meant. Though, of course, I'm fully 100% banking on Chainsaw Man taking over this list when that anime comes out. It's going to happen 100%. I would be shocked if it didn't. It'll be a competition, perhaps, between Chainsaw Man and Spy Family and Legion. There are a lot of big series uh, coming out in October, coming out in this fall season. Yeah, this, this like next anime season is really, really stacked. So people are going to be watching a lot of anime, that's for sure. Uh, next up, we have Volume 1 of Demon Slayer, ranking at number 10. Demon Slayer Volume 1, I think, is at this point a pretty reliable bestseller, or at least a pretty frequent title on this list. Uh, speaking of frequent titles, we have Volume 31 of My Hero Academia, ranking at number 11, with Volume 1 ranking at number 19. And not much else to say there, I think. My Hero Academia, another very like frequent title on this list, especially with Volume 1. Yeah, we'll see if MHG gets another boost with Season 6 in October as well. I could see that. If I remember correctly, Season 6 is going to be covering a lot of really big material that I'm really excited to watch eventually. And then uh, next up is another title that we don't see, like, all the time, but, like, comes up um, frequently enough uh, with Comey Can't Communicate Volume 20 at number 12. Still still a good, strong showing for Comey, though. Yeah, I mean, Comey was selling really well. From the beginning of its publication here, even before the anime happened. So Komi, yeah, just continuing to be a strong seller. And it's nice to see, again, a series like it. It's, you know, kind of a slice of ice romance series, you know, performed so competitively with like, you know, these shonen action titles. I wouldn't be surprised if Komi was like, you know, this is like best selling Sunday title at this point. I think that's pretty much been confirmed via the books can report that we covered by Brian Hitz that basically based on numbers Comey is probably the best-selling Sunday title of uh, the last year or a couple of years previous to most likely in terms of volumes sold. I'm really interested in seeing like how well it's done compared to like any other Sunday title they still have at this point that like they've been selling for a while that they still have like, I guess the license to like, you know, I, I don't want to be like, oh, it's probably outsold all of their Sunday titles, like just in general, but I mean, like going back historically, I don't know if it's like outsold the likes of Inuyasha and Ranma, like in terms of like that's true overall yeah. amount of volume sold in their lifetime. But as for right now, like it is the Sunday Idol that seems to be moving the most units, the most volumes. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, next up, we have Kaiju number eight, volume three at number 15 on the list. Kaiju number eight. I'm just happy to see it doing well. And then really the last thing we have to talk about on this list is My Dress Up Darling Volume 6 at number 16, which, uh, you know, I'm, I'm also happy for Dress Up Darling doing very well. Yeah, the only other non-Viz Media title besides Toilet Bound Hanako-kun, the only other non-Battle title besides Komi. Yeah, it's great to see this as a big hit for Square Enix. And also, again, a non-Shonen romance title. Yeah, it's great that this is doing so well, selling very competitively to, again, these big shonen 
action hits. And yeah, I'm glad to see it add a little bit of a genre variety to an otherwise homogenous, you know, battle shonen, shonen jumpy lineup of titles of bestsellers. But still, in terms of number of different titles, again, this list has the most variety we've seen in a while, but a few big surprises in terms of some of the top sellers when it comes to like One Piece Volume 100 and DBS Volume 16. So yeah, it's a very, very interesting list this month. For sure. Um, one thing that I think is really interesting about this list, actually, because the only two like non-manga titles on here are the second volume of Lore Olympus, as well as, uh, I guess, a new edition of um, volume one of The Sandman, which uh, The Sandman is interesting because, you know, that's a comic that obviously is very well beloved and also has like a Netflix adaptation right now that is very, very popular and well received, even though Netflix seems hesitant on making more of it. I don't know if that's just like a money thing or whatever, but you never know with Netflix. Um, that's neither here nor there. But I think the fact that the Sandman just like barely cracked the top 10 and like, you know, again, that's something with, you know, something you could watch on Netflix, something that's really, really widely available to millions and millions of people. You know, the fact that like everything else above it sold that much more, I think really says a lot. Yeah, the Sandman is what you would think is like kind of the mainstream title. What with it being on Netflix and being kind of more at the forefront of pop culture conversations. But in when translating that into comic sales, like to see, yeah, that Sandman is like in the bottom part of the top 10 and number eight in this overall top 20, but still there are like manga titles outselling it. That, that does show like the comics marketplace right now, manga is really what is moving the most through its longest, like the hot properties of the comics scene right now in the market. So it's, it's a very, very interesting and shows, yeah, the manga market is very strong in North America right now that it can outsell like venerated titles like Sandman and titles that again, like also like them and like just are in more of the pop culture consciousness because they have like big mainstream adaptations on these mainstream platforms and whatnot for sure um but i think that's about it for the book scan list and uh, i think we should move on to our serialization news indeed so we'll start off with a few series that are ending including two titles that have been running on comic e for a bit and we covered this first and we really enjoyed it killer in love by emma akiyama has recently ended the final log of the series will ship out in Japan on October 19th. Right now, it's a digital exclusive on Hamaki. But yeah, I mean, we really enjoyed this one as it's a twisted love murder story and whatnot. I definitely, now that it's over, I will check out the series to its end. You know, I got all the, the chapters unlocked and everything. So when I get some time, I'll definitely read it through the end. I'm definitely curious to see the directions it went and how it turned out. But yeah. Yeah, I'm really excited to get to the rest of this because I, th- I, I, don't, I don't know how much farther you got from like when we covered it on the show, but I think I got like 23 chapters in. Like, I think I had like caught up to like where it was being like, I think simulpubbed. And yeah, I remember Killer in Love is the kind of series that like, I just wasn't really interested in like reading like week to week or like however frequent it was coming out. Like this is the kind of series that like I needed to binge. Yeah, it was a very, it was a big page turner of a series. Very, very bingeable. So, oh my God. Definitely now that it's over, it'll be a blast to read through. For sure. I'm probably going to read the rest of this later, actually. Another title that has been running on Comic Key, Asobi Azabase, uh, has also come to 
Well, it's coming to its end. The final chapter should be out on the October 28th issue of Young Animal. This is another, like, fun comedy title about, like, you know, three classmates just being kind of little shits in their classroom. <laughs> and, you know, anime was very funny and very popular. The manga is also really good. Uh, we didn't cover it on the show because it hadn't yet become a simulpub when we were doing kind of, like, our look into comedy titles. But since then, they kind of filled, like, the chapter gaps and they, I think, graduated to it being a simul. So, yeah, now... We we can look forward to reading through the series to its end on Comic as well. And yeah, I'm curious to see how that'll turn out. Another title that I definitely will give like a full roots to when the final chapter drops and it's all out. And now we'll talk about some new titles coming from very popular mangaka or notable mangaka. So the authors of Deadpool Samurai, the duo behind that, Sanshiro Kasama and Hikaru Esegi, have launched a new manga called Hot-Headed Prince Becomes Commoner on Kodansha's Amazing Pocket app. And we don't know that much about it, but I think the title kind of gives away a lot of what it's about, right? It's about like this <laughs> this prince who, I guess, decides to live kind of the life of like an ordinary person, kind of an incognito thing. So yeah, I mean, I think that this created a team's sense of humor and art is very strong based on Deadpool Samurai. So this is a title that sounds amusing in concept just based on the title. And the PR here is very strong. So yeah, based on my enjoying of Deadpool Center, I would definitely be keen to check this out if it gets legally translated at some point. Now, another author returning with a new work is Naoshi Arakawa, author of Your Eye in April, and Farewell, My Dear Kramer. They've started a new series in Weekly Shonen Magazine called A Trite Game, which, you know, even though it has come out, uh, or it is just about to come out, like, I don't really have much of a description. I've been trying to look up, see people talk about it. No one really has yet. There's been, like, kind of some promotional art that, like, shows, like, a kid with, like, a sword and then the reflection of, like, kind of what looks like another character on the sword. So it looks like they're doing an action title now, which seems interesting, a different change of direction for them. So definitely keen to hear about this. Their works are very well liked. Uh, Fair Metal, my dear Kramer especially, I was really interested in and I enjoyed what I read. It's um, Sayonara Football. So yeah, I'm, I'm interested in hearing more about it's about and how people like it in comparison to his more popular works. Now we've got a new title as well from Izumi Miyazono who did Everyone's Getting Married, a series I really really enjoyed so I'm looking forward to her work for hers and her new series is Let's Get Married Before We Fall in Love which is going to come out on the October 7th issue of Petite Comic so yeah another kind of story about like kind of adults trying to navigate wanting to get married and yeah this series will focus on a girl called Natsuki, an office worker who's looking for a boyfriend, wants to get married eventually and, you know, the office's elite lawyer claims he's not interested in love, but something about him attracts Nancy closer, and so it begins, like, kind of a love battle between them, you know. Kind of, uh, can she convince him to fall in love with her and then eventually get married? So, again, interesting dynamic, kind of like a gender role reversal compared to everyone's getting married. So, yeah, I'm keen to read more of Miyazona's his, his works and this series. So, yeah, very much looking forward to it. 
And interestingly, we are getting some new manga from people who are been pretty prolific in the anime industry. So scriptwriter Yasuko Kobayashi has teamed up with artist Saki Noyama to do a new manga called Danzai Luck. And it will be launched in the Comic Stays app. And it's basically set in a world where everyone, no matter what the circumstances, who kills someone is themselves sentenced to death and they are imprisoned in like a place called the six prison districts where a strange economic system exists in there. And then the protagonist is like a guy who calls himself a chaplain, has priestly guard, and then he encounters like a man who bears a sword that is called the Kanoji. So in terms of like kind of the vibe of it, it feels like kind of a dead man wonderland-ish kind of series like these are death row kind of prisoners who are kind of like forced to compete or like barter in order to prolong their lives so that's uh, intriguing to me kobayashi is a writer has been a veteran of the industry since 1996 starting with their work on hell teacher nube and she has you know written on a lot of series over the years including jojo's bizarre adventure tekken titan kakarui and dororo and her previous work writing manga has been for witchblade franchise they did the they wrote for the witchblade takari manga she also you know was the head writer in the witchblade anime so that makes sense so yeah she, i mean she's been a prolific writer in anime and she's had a lot of credits on you know action and like kind of psychological battle titles so i think that makes kind of a psychological competition type manga from her sound very intriguing i definitely would like to see how this original concept from her will play out so we'll, we'll see how this pans out if it gets an official translation i'm definitely keen to check it out i'd read it and we also are getting a manga from anime director Tomohiko Ito, who has teamed up with artist Meki Kuroyama to do a new manga called Wonder X on Karakawa's coming new type website. And this is, you know, Ito's debut in manga. This is a series going to be set in the first half of the 90s. Then there's an adventure of a group of kids after in contact with a mysterious being. So seemingly a group of kids probably coming in contact with an extraterrestrial thing, kind of like an old school time of adventure, a coming of age type comedy. Hmm. Sounds sounds very Stranger Things-esque to me. <laughs> yeah, I could very much take inspiration from that, although, yeah, just switching decades from 80s to 90s. Yeah. <laughs> Ito is best known for directing Sword Art Online. He did the first two seasons of that and the Ordinal Skull film and a lot of, like, A1 Aniplex titles, like Silver Spoon and Erased, and most recently he directed Hello World, a film from a few years back. So, yeah, we'll see what direction he goes with in terms of tone and style because the titles he's worked on you know he's worked on a lot of adaptation stuff and a lot of stuff of like differing genre and tones so uh, it's going to be interesting to see like what his own voice as like a writer how that's going to come out in this series and yeah i'll be keen to see if this title if it has any success gets a translation and check it out that way but that about does it for new serialization updates. Let's move on to licenses now, starting off with the smaller publishers. We got some cool new licensing announcements from Starfoot Books. 
both new Minami Kyuta titles, which I'm very excited for. They are going to have a new, like, kind of one-shot from her, Miyo Sotsis, that will be featured in their first issue of their comic Bright magazine. It's about a guy called Koei who wants to stay on, like, the southern island I guess off the coast of Japan, well, his wife Kiho wants to return to her job in Tokyo. And alone on the island, he, like, reflects on, like, what is driving them apart, putting a distance between them. And he gets helped out by a mysterious boy he meets on the beach and begins to search and discover his own feelings. And, you know, the preview art looks really good. It seems like Kohei is, like, a manga artist who's not meeting his headlines and stuff like that. So, uh, mood there. And, yeah, I'm very much curious to, again, read, like, this new short story from Kyuta. And as as well, I am, of course, excited for her new book that Starfruit is going to be publishing, Below the Ceiling, which will come out in spring 2023. And it's a book that follows the footsteps of four women in the romances that they pursue. Each story filled with a mix of emotions. They're being presented by Kyuta. And it sounds a lot like Fumiya Shinaga's All My Darling Daughters in terms of that respect, in terms of focusing on different women and their relationships and their life journeys and so i'm very much looking forward and excited for that this was a title that was published by kyuta you know back in 1999 great to see it get published now here in english thanks to starfruit and in general i'm glad they're bringing out more kyuta's titles uh and more you know varied works in terms of jose jojo or all these different genres that are generally underserved by the major publishers so starfruit continuing to do great works continuing to work with a great author like kyuta i'm very much looking forward to reading these releases. Eridori Comics is also licensing some new titles that are coming out digitally this October, starting with I Fell for My Friend's Older Sister, which is going to be released on Eridori Aqua as like a one big single volume work by Hazus Akina. And it's basically about a guy who like really likes the older sister of his best friend and feels that, you know, the age difference between them means that he's barely on her radar. And so he wants to like prove himself as a man to this girl, like more than being like his friend's, you know, playmate and, you know, get her to notice him. But his friend is frustrated with Senna, who's a loud mount friend of Rio's, who's like just too noisy for her own good, but it also irritates him that there's like just constant pestering how, you know, even despite constant pestering, it's how she can't just see him as a little kid. So they kind of have similar problems with like two different like people that they kind of want them to acknowledge them as like more than just being friends and more than just like being younger people and like potential romantic partners so it's kind of interesting to have those two kind of parallel relationships in this work and we'll see how those like kind of intertwine and play off each other it sounds like a very interesting concept for a like kind of it doesn't even seem like have a love square kind of thing it's just like kind of like parallel two different relationships being worked through that are have similar situations 
Then we got a new title that is going to be published under Iridori Sakura, Manjaku's Midnight Rendezvous. About a guy, Gogoro, constantly belittled by his family, can't escape her teasing even when out on vacation. And he goes to take a dip in that and catch sight of like a super macho, bearded, hulking specimen of a man. <laughs> his ego takes a, a hit because he feels a bit of like inferiority in terms of like his body image. But, you know, then that same man offers him a chance to turn those feelings around and become more like a apex predator which Ooh. i mean based on the imprint that's being posed in it's like feels like clearly like bl it feels like clearly this is like a gay comey so yeah I, and i don't know what goro is uh claiming about he has a great body type based on this cover you know so you know he, he might not have as much hair on the chest or as much muscle but he certainly is not slouching either he's got some great Pack. So I, I don't know about, you know, him feeling too insecure about his body image. But, you know, uh, it looks like uh, he's going to get help out by this big hulking guy. Uh, potentially, like, some love will form between them. Or at the very least, they'll probably have some passionate sex. Uh, I don't know if this is going to be, like, a R-rated work or adult work and erotic work. But uh, considering it's Sakura, at least, like, yeah, there'll be some relationships up there. And hopefully, like, he'll get over. He'll be able to help, be helped through kind of, like, his his feelings of being emasculated or insecure about himself. Yeah, to put it another way, I don't know if this is going to get as raunchy or as extreme as something like, you know, from Kengoro Takame, for instance, you know? Yeah, I mean, if Kengoro Takame was writing this, it would have, like, elements of, like, BDSM and submission and all that stuff. But, you know, I don't know if it'll go quite in that direction, but we'll see. And, yeah, so it's great to see these different titles licensed relatively recent titles too like Hina's manga came out on social media in little spurts and then as a single volume earlier this year in April 8 and then Midnight Rendezvous was self-published by Banjaku on July 20th so you know again great to see them get indie like manga titles like this self-published works like this and translate them publish them over here and yeah again nice selection of titles in terms of variety too Mm -hmm. so yeah great pickups by Dory. Moving on to the bigger publishers, we got some new titles from Yen Plus. They have made like six new manga announcements, two new light novel announcements. So going through them, for titles that they plan to debut in March 2023, they've got The Utterworlder Exploring the Dungeon by writer Hinaki Asami, artist Kureta. It is an adaptation of the light novel series. It's also available by Yen in their Yen on imprint. About a guy who signs up for a gig to warp into a fantasy world as in a dungeon diner and claim the treasure inside, but the transfer process kind of goes awry. He gets separated from his teammates and he gets Randed. So is this adventure going to end before it even begins? So basically he's kind of out on his own, like trying to navigate this fantasy world, like even this in-between part between worlds. So yeah, that could be an interesting concept to explore. Then we have the villainous dance of heroes playing the antagonist of supporter fades story by Yamori Michikusa art by Tsubasa Takamatsu. 
you know, it's another reincarnated civilian story, but the twist this time is that she's reincarnated into the game as well as and wants to help out the heroes to make them shine. She basically decides to play her role as villainous to perfection so that the heroes can shine as the heroes. But she seems to make like one really impulsive mistake that changes the story very drastically. So I think that's kind of an interesting approach that a lot of times in these reincarnated villainous stories, it's like a story about reformation, like this, you know, girl getting a chance to like take the villainous and reform her character in an effort to like avoid like the bad end for that character but also kind of give her a more happier life but in this case it's like no i want to lean into being the the villain to you know make the heroes look as cool as they can because i i'm super fan girl for them and i, I kind of like that variation on it is like no nah, like I, I want to play my role for perfection rather than kind of deviate from the role so I, I like that little variation there that's gonna make it a little more interesting and definitely one that i want to check out Next, we got Sunbees in the Sai from Monica Kaname about twin sisters that seem like perfect copies of each other but have very different personalities. One of them decides to stay home from school because of an unfortunate accident, so of course the other one decides to take their place and give them a return. It's a very common trope of like, oh, they're siblings, one sibling gets sick and can't attend school, so the other sibling attends in the place, and usually it has like kind of a cross-dressing twist. Like, we read a variation of this kind of premise all on Comic-E when we did that roundup of titles they have. But yeah, this time it's like, well, there's not really a gender-bidding twist here, but like one twin is pretending to be the other, and I'm sure that's going to cause some relationship complications. And we'll see what new they bring to the table in terms of exploring that territory. Next, we've got the Reformation of the World is overseen by a realist demon king. Story by Hatoryosuke. Yugen does the illustrations for this novel. And it's about the 72nd demon king that has been reincarnated to rule alongside a chaotic mystery of humans and heroes in another world. And the Stephen King Astaroth has been tasked with overseeing the reconstruction of his stranger land, but he's a realist, so he will rare, use rarely seen resourcefulness and tactics to reshape the fate of all who live under his reign. So this seems similar to another series that is also about kind of a realist who brings like practicalness into like rebuilding a territory or building up a, a world and whatnot. But I guess it Iteration here is that it is done this time by like a demon king. So yeah, we'll see like if that adds anything kind of new to this type of idea of like, oh, what do you do when you take a very practical minded guy into the fantasy world and how will they reshape that world? So we'll see if they find new territory to explore in there from the perspective of a villain or like a demonic character and how they're positioned in the world. Next, we've got a sequel manga to Kinuyo Mosaic, Kinuyo Mosaic Best Wishes by Yohara. And this is basically 11 chapters ranging in from the everyday life of Alice and her friends from graduation to behind the stories of their high school life that were shown in the main series. So if you're a fan of Kinuyo Mosaic, this seems like a good epilogue plus a supplement bonus stories for you to enjoy. 
Next, we've got The Call in the Name of the Night by Tama Mitsuboshi. This is about a pair of people who reside deep in a forest, a young girl called Mira, who has an affliction that leads her to call for darkness when she's in distress, and her physician Ray, who's determined to find a cure for her. And so every day she's trying to work to remember the light and bring back the person she used to be, but then they get visited by Ray's friend, who has an interest in Mira's illness, and that might be the end of their peaceful days together in the forest. So this is one I I heard people be really excited for. The art certainly looks very beautiful and definitely reminds me of a few other titles that have kind of a similar type of premise and vibe, like Somali and the Forest Spirit or whatever. So we'll see, like, you know, in terms of premise, how this works as a variation. But in terms of like art, aesthetic, it looks very gorgeous. So it'll be interesting to check out just on that merit alone. Next, we've got Hollow to Galia, a new light novel series from the author of Strike the Blood, a Mikumo Gakuto with illustrations by Miyu. And yeah, it's the kind of classic opposites attract Captain Work to Kitakai's girl, you know, Dragon and Dragon Slayer. You know, in this world, apparently the Japanese as a group have been wiped out because dragons, giant dragons appeared in the sky above Tokyo and like just destroyed the nation of Japan. And then, you know, monsters called Moju came. The nation was transformed into a lawless land occupied by armed forces and criminal syndicates and only a few like ethnically Japanese people left including the protagonist Yahiro and he has gained immortality from dragon's blood and he sends every day lonely as a salvager and sporting artwork out of the uninhabited ruins of Tokyo until one day a pair of twin art dealers requested he salvage a particularly powerful and mysterious item and I guess at some point he ends up teaming up with a dragon girl a humanoid dragon girl so yeah, I mean, the premise is loaded with a lot of ideas that, you know, we'll see how they lean in terms of like, it's commentary on nationalism or stuff like that. I'd have to read the work to like understand where it's like gonna go with that or where it's just like, no, we're just kind of setting up like a local apocalypse type premise for the series because it really only talks about Tokyo and not what's happening in the outer world, but like the specific emphasizing that Japanese people have disappeared and have been replaced by like monsters kind of raised some eyebrows alarm bells like hmm what is this saying here but uh you know we'll see Uh, overall in terms of like the general premise of it it sounds like kind of like a traditional type of action premise like oh like the slayer has to team up with the thing he's tasked to slay you know i mean we kind of got another variation of this type of premise with execution or a way of life just recently of like oh like she's tasked to slay these people from the other world but she has to team up with this person from the other world so it's gonna seems like kind of that kind of thing and uh, we'll see how interesting it'll be in an iteration of that like I, I like Mew's art here uh, but again like the premise seems a little loaded and you know the basic core concept of it again it's, it's an iteration it's a story concept we've seen a lot so we'll see what it's bringing new to the table now the big announcement Yen Press made that people just really were enamored over and excited over was that they licensed Mokumo Kuren's The Summer That Akaru Died, which was a fairly recent manga. It just came out last August, so just a year ago on Kadakawa's Young Aesop website. But uh, this is a story about two boys who lived in a village and they did everything together until the eponymous Hikaru was encompassed by mysterious light and everything changed. Hikaru 
most of all. And protagonist Yoshiki shows in the bottom start that he could have always stayed uh, by his side, but is there even a Hikaru left to be with? And basically the idea of this series is basically like after this big incident where the character Hikaru was like encompassed by his life, he basically completely changes a person. So he kind of like metaphorically kind of died in that moment. He's not the same person that he used to be. It's kind of navigating those kind of feelings of like, you know, the person I used to be so close to it, I like barely seem to know them anymore. And so I think that uh, is a very interesting concept. The art around everything I've seen is just very beautiful. And people like were really, really like excited and happy for this license. So this is definitely kind of the one I think they keep an eye on for Yen's newest licenses here. Yeah, they announced this title like just by itself, which told me like, oh, they know that people are probably going to be looking forward to this one in particular. Yeah, they really hyped it up by having it be a solo announcement. And they were like saying, oh, we got one big one coming. And uh, yeah, the reaction to it certainly seemed to justify, oh, like it, it was a big title for a lot of people. So one I'm very much interested in checking out. Mm-hmm, for sure. And I guess we can move on to uh, a few Seven Seas licenses. And um, Lum, I need your help with this one because I am not entirely familiar with Orange outside of the anime. Yeah, so Ichigo Takana is kind of in the years since like Orange ended and doing kind of like sequel stories and those have been collected in like further volumes. Oh yeah, that's right. I remember now. So this volume of Orange, Orange to You, Dear One, is going to be the seventh book in the series and supposedly it'll be the final volume of the series. It'll come out March 2023. And yeah, I mean, I don't, I think again, it's just going to be another collection of like these sequel stories to Orange. And, uh, you know, because Tagano has been doing a lot of those over the years. So yeah, I, I remember like covering like, or at least like reporting on a few of those throughout the show over the years. Yeah, I mean, there was one just as recently as this January for the 10th anniversary of the series. So there's been a couple ones to collect. And I think that's what's going to be in this book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one, one day I'll have to read the orange manga because I remember, I, I feel like even before the anime premiered, like I feel like I remember orange being a pretty popular title. Orange was a big title. It was very well talked about. I mean, I was reading the manga uh, as it was going because it very quickly on gained a lot of buzz and reputation. And yeah, it was an enjoyable drama story. So yeah, I mean, it's a title that really has kind of just lingered in uh, consciousness. It, it made a big impression early on and it continues to. What with, you know, to kind of continue to make sequel stories for it though. Apparently this volume will be the last one uh, but we'll see. It seems to be you know a story that people enjoy going back to a lot, or at least Takano has for like over the years. Mm-hmm. And I guess, like you said, we'll see if this actually ends up being the final volume of Orange. Um, but yes, just to talk about the rest of Seven Seas licenses, they are going to be releasing the manga version of Even Dogs Go to Other Worlds, Life in Another World with My Beloved Hound. Uh, the first volume of that will be coming out uh, in print and in digital on May 2023. And um, I'm pretty sure I've talked about this license before when the original light novel got picked up. It's basically about a salary man who works a dead-end job, but he can get through it because he has his little dog, Leo, who's a Maltese. And basically, he wakes up one day in a fantasy world, and his dog turns into a big old wolf. And now he has a big old wolf friend. And uh, I'm pretty sure I remember talking about the light novel license in one of our licensing highlights in an episode past... Uh, uh, and I remember being like, yeah, I would also love to be reincarnated in another world uh, with my dog as a wolf friend, you know? I think that sounds great. 
And then uh, next license to talk about is Does It Count If You Lose Your Virginity to an Android by Yakiniku Teishoku. I had to practice saying that a few times before he had to get on the show. So this will be coming out in print and digital in April 2023, in which office lady Suda Akane, age 28, seems like she's got it all together. Beautiful, brainy, and an indispensable office worker for robotics manufacturer. Akane is admired at work because her colleagues can't see her at home. Privately, Akane's a hot mess with an apartment that looks more like a landfill than a living space. Good thing she drunkenly ordered a new android named Nadeshko to help her clean up. Well, maybe not good, because the beautiful lady android that arrives is a horny hottie. Akane's about to get more service than she expected. And so, I think this sounds like this could be, like, a fun, like, sort of etchy comedy kind of thing. I could get into it. Yeah, nice, etchier comedy with an office lady protagonist. Yeah, I think that it definitely will float a lot of people's boats. Oh, for sure. It sounds amusing. Uh, for sure. We'll see how, like, you know, uh, raunchy it gets as well. Uh, next up, we have My New Life as a Cat from Konomi Wagata, also printed and digital, will be coming out in April 2023, in which uh, now Kuzushiro is a normal high school student until he gets in a traffic accident and winds up in the body of a cat. At first, it's all fun and games as he gets used to his new form, but then the novelty wears off and the hunger sets in. Uh, luckily, he's picked up by Chika, a girl his age, who gives him food and a home off the streets. She's pawfully sweet and pretty, but meanwhile, he's still in a furry feline body. Well, now, now, meow, get it? Because he's a cat. Uh, ever gets his human form back or will fur end up flying instead of sparks? I hope this doesn't go to weird places because so far this could be cute, but I don't know. With, without reading it myself, I'm worried about like where this could go. <laughs> I mean, the cover gives off the vibe that it's a cute series, but yeah, I mean, transformed to a pet, getting to be like physically close with the person you're crushing on in a way that, you know, they don't suspect. So it's like, we'll see like if it goes into like invasive territory there, but otherwise it seems like, oh, cute hijinks, like it's me, now the the cat taking care of like the, the person, a person I like or a person like my same age. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, we'll have to see. The cover's very cute though, I like it. Yeah. Uh, next up we have Cinderella Closet from Wakana Yanai, that'll be also coming out in print and a digital in April 2023, in which Haruka is a quote-unquote plain Jane who left the countryside to start her college life in Tokyo. She's secretly in love with Kurotaki, a co-worker at her part-time job, but she lacks the self-confidence to confess her feelings to him. Then she meets Hikaru, a glamorous but sharp-tongued fashionista who begrudgingly agrees to play the quote-unquote fairy godmother for Haruka and help her learn to love and value herself in the process. However, there's more to Hikaru than meets the eye. And so, yeah, this sounds like it could be like a cute little like shoujo rom-com kind of thing. Yeah, it sounds like they, he, she works with this person to help play matchmaker for her, but then they'll become closer with each other and there'll be some, you know, complicated feelings involved. So, yeah, I mean, the art looks very charming and the premise has potential, so I'd have to be keen to check it out. Mm -hmm. And uh, this next one I thought was a very interesting pickup because I think you could still read this on Manga Plus, but uh, Seven Seas has picked up Shiro Moria soloist in a cage and this will be coming out in print and digital in may 2023 in which chloe and her baby brother Locke were born in a prison the size of a city a walled off collection of ramshackle buildings full of dangerous criminals who live bleak and isolated lives 
Their parents are gone, leaving Chloe to take care of her brother. When a trio of soldiers manage to break out of the prison, Chloe goes with them, but loses Locke during the escape. After years of training, Chloe returns to the prison city with one goal, to find her now 11-year-old brother and get him out of that hellhole no matter what it takes. And so, yeah, this was definitely a series I remember when, like, Manga Plus started up that I definitely wanted to get to. I still haven't gotten to it, unfortunately, but it's still on my list. Yeah, it was a very beautifully drawn series and went on hiatus for a long while. But it came back early this year and concluded its run. Or rather, last year and concluded its run. So, yeah, I'm glad to see that, you know, it's another Manga Plus title that's been picked up. Another Manga Plus title that's been picked up. And uh, getting published here. So, I'm, I'm glad to see that because this was definitely one of, like, kind of the standout title from, like, kind of the launch lineup on Manga Plus. So, you know, glad to see it make the transition to I just think it's kind of interesting that like Seven Seas has gotten access to some of these like Jump Plus titles because I know they've picked up like more than a few at this point. Yeah, I mean, I think it's like at this point, like Shoeisha is like open to other publishers just picking up Jump Plus titles and giving them print runs if Wiz is not going to do it. I wonder if it's just because like Viz is so busy with like Shonen Jump and like a lot of other titles from a lot of other magazines that maybe they just don't have enough people to work on these other Jump Plus titles. I wonder if that's the case or... I mean, that and I and they're very conservative as a publisher and what they pick up. And we've known that for a while. So they don't really take risks on titles they don't see as getting like big returns for them. Mm-hmm. Or like really feeling confident that, oh, they're going to be hits. You know, even though they're so simple, they can wager on taking risks, but... We know that their strategy in terms of publishing is like to be very, very selective. But yeah. like other publishers are like interested in pursuing variety, uh, and interesting pursuing unique titles, uh, and just trying to fill different niches in the market. So it makes sense that like they would look at what is interesting on the Jump Plus lineup and go for series that, hey, you know, this has big potential. And we want to take a chance on it. And we want to publish it. Mm-hmm. I'm just glad that more Jump Plus comics are like being brought over in, you know, that they get the chance to be, you know, localized by companies that aren't like, you know, whoever they pay like pennies to do over at like Manga Plus. So that's that's always good. <laughs> yeah, that is always a great thing. Um, just to continue on to the next few Seven Seas licenses, we have Taichi Nagaoka's Please Go Home, Miss Akutsu. That'll be coming out physically and digitally in March 2023, in which Timid Oyama keeps to himself at school, and he certainly never gets involved with Akutsu Riko, a delinquent as buxom as she is notorious. But when she turns up at his apartment out of the blue, what's he supposed to do? Kick her out? She's gorgeous and scary. But things get complicated when Akutsu asks to stay the night, then starts turning up over and over again after school, reading Oyama's manga, sprawling out on his bed, and digging up his smut stash. Why exactly is she claiming his life as her hangout? She makes it clear that there's no way she could possibly like him, but the teasing threatens to boil over into something more in this sexy yet adorable slice-of-life rom-com. I think this is definitely up my alley. I could definitely get into, like, timid guy meets delinquent girl, and they have a relationship from there, maybe. Like, I'm pretty all about that dynamic, so I would love to check this out, actually. Yeah, I love uh, delinquent girls as well, so I'm keen to, to see this. I mean, I don't know if the guy sounds that interesting to me, but, you know, they could have a fun dynamic. 
Uh, next up, we have My Girlfriend's Child from Mamoru Aoi. Again, coming out in print and in digital in April 2023, in which uh, Sachi and her boyfriend Takara are a young couple in high school. They go to school together, hang out, and even engage in the more intimate side of dating. However, after a recent evening of sex, Sachi gets the feeling that something isn't right and buys a pregnancy test. Later in the bathroom of a family restaurant far from her home, she sees the two red lines that will change her life forever. A tender and honest look at the realities of teen pregnancy, My Girlfriend's Child is sure to spark conversation. Yeah, it's a heavy topic. This is another one that I saw got like real buzz over. The announcement over, people really looking forward to this is like kind of very compelling drama. And also sincere look at the situation. So definitely, definitely one to keep an eye on. Yeah, I was going to say, because um, I don't want to come off like, oh, it's never been done before. But uh, I, I feel like this is the kind of thing I don't see tackle like seriously in manga very often, at least not in my experience. So like this definitely stands out to me and I wouldn't mind checking this out. It sounds like it could be good. Yeah, I mean, it definitely sounds like it, it is going to treat the topic very delicately and take it very seriously. For sure. And then I guess the last Seven Seas license to talk about is I Didn't Mean to Fall in Love from Minta Suzumaru, uh, which will be coming out physically and digitally in March 2023, in which uh, Yoshino knows at the age of 30 that he wants to be with men, but he doesn't know how to find one. When he overhears some women at work talking about a gay bar, he realizes for some people it's just that easy. He thinks the flashy college student Ro is one of those people when Ro readily offers to have sex with him, but Yoshino finds himself falling for the charming young man despite his best efforts. After all, it's not possible to find Mr. Right by sleeping with the first man who offers it, is it? So yeah, this sounds like it could be like an interesting, like sort of like BL type of story. Not much else to say there, I think. But um, yeah, that's really about it for all the Seven Seas licenses. I think... Um, yeah, I mean, I guess in terms of other comments, I do like that it's a story about a guy who's, you know, now in his 30s and he's like kind of finally realizing that, okay, I know that I'm gay and I want to be with men, but I don't know where the gay community is. I don't know how to go about forming relationships with men. And so then he's just trying to try and figure it out. And then he kind of ends up meeting someone younger and this college student who, you know, there's this different dynamic here is that Yoshino is much more inexperienced with love than this younger person that he's like getting to this relationship with. And so it's like navigating these different issues of like experience and comfort levels and intimacy and like what this person really wants out of a relationship. So I find like that to be very interesting to have kind of like a person who's a little bit older kind of finally come out and trying to explore his sexuality and form relationships and find a part so i think that's a very valuable thing to have like again a story with an older protagonist navigating those kind of feelings and territories because that can be experienced for a lot of uh, queer people that they may came out like later in life and they don't know where to start so i think that could be a very interesting look at that kind of situation mm-hmm but yeah, I think that's about it for all the Seven Seas licenses. Definitely a lot of stuff that I'm looking forward to checking out eventually. But I think we should move on to our last batch of licenses from J Novel Club, which I believe previews for most of these series are available for anyone who wants to check them out, both manga and light novels. First title I'm going to talk about is the light novel uh, Reincarnated as an Apple. This forbidden fruit is forever unblemished, written by Gato with illustrations from Itsuki Mito. And uh, these are my favorite types of synopses. Uh, in character synopses. 
My name is Daisuke Furutsu, and I died getting hit by a truck full of apples. Yes, I know, it's a cliched setup. Apparently, somebody upstairs fell asleep on the job. Anyway, as an apology, God lets me draw five cards of fate that are supposed to grant me superpowers in my next life. My first four draws are amazing, stuff like magic and an infinite inventory, but everything changes with the fifth card, a curse that turns me into whatever killed me. I thought I was going to end up a truck, but now I'm an apple. Luckily, I've made a friend named... Uh, they didn't include it, who could teach me how to move around. I also end up saving a wannabe adventurer who just might be willing to take me along for the ride. Time for this overpowered apple to get rolling. And I mean, hey, look, if this were a sitcom, I'd watch it. But yeah, okay, this this sounds like it could be pretty fun. Um, I really want to see like the comedic potential with this premise, actually. I'd be very interested in checking this out. Yeah, any type of premise where you're reincarnated is just something weird, you know, has potential to go in crazy places. It kind of reminds me of that bit in Dragon Ball where, like, Vegito's fighting Boo, and Boo turns him into a piece of candy, and then he kicks his ass. <laughs> yeah, just sentient food. It's unstoppable. I would really like to see if something like that happens. Next up, we have Peddler in Another World. I can go back to my world whenever I want. A light novel written by Hiro Shimotsuki uh, with illustrations by Takashi Iwasaki, in which after quitting his job at a toxic company, Shiro Amada moves into the house his grandmother left him in her will. There, he soon makes two life-changing discoveries. One, his grandmother was really a witch from another world. And two, said other world is just on the other side of her closet door. Thanks to a book she left for Shiro, he also manages to obtain an all-powerful skill called Equivalent Exchange, which allows him to turn money from his world into otherworldly currency and vice versa. With this, Shiro decides to set up shop and sell convenient items like matches to the colorful inhabitants of the other world. His plan is to make a massive profit on the goods he brings from home to become so rich that he never needs another job ever again. Which, uh, I think this, I mean, I mean, first off, that sounds smart. Second, I'm really digging this sort of, like, Narnia-esque, like, oh, if you open this thing, you find yourself in another world or whatever. So, I don't know, this could be pretty interesting, I think. Next up, we have an introvert's hookup hiccups. Uh, this Gyaru is head over heels for me. A light novel written by Yuishi with illustrations by Kagachisaku. When the gorgeous Nanami Barato confesses to Yoshin Misumai, it seems too good to be true. Only it is, and Yoshin knows it. How's an introverted guy like him supposed to keep his cool when he knows this is all just a dare? Even more puzzling, despite her gaudy appearance, this supposed Gyaru isn't actually all that good with guys. Perhaps this is the perfect chance for this shy guy to pluck up his own courage and say yes to the guy-shy girl. So begins their new cushy life of morning meetups and handmade lunches. The thing is, judging by the way she's acting, Nanami has fallen head over heels for him. Uh, from dares and dating to downright disasters, can these two first-timers figure out their feelings and maybe even fall in love for real this time? So, yeah, I, I think this could be cute. Definitely also, like, weirdly unlocks, like, a definite fear of mine that I had as a kid where it's like, any time, like, a girl came up to me and was like, oh, hey, I kind of like you, it usually ended up like, oh, like, she was just joking or whatever. Like, th this is definitely the kind of thing that I think a lot of kids go through. So, yeah, I don't know. It, it just It just sounds cute. And then next up, we have Making Magic, The Sweet Life of a Witch Who Knows an Infinite MP Loophole, another light novel written by Aloha Zacho with illustrations by Tetubuta. 
And, oh boy, another in-character one. I love these. Looks like I've been reincarnated into a game-like world filled with monsters and dungeons, but don't worry, it's nothing I can't handle. I chose creation magic for my unique skill, and it lets me make whatever item I want, so long as I've got enough mana. Ah, there's always a catch, isn't there? But where there's a rule, there's a loophole, and this little witch knows just the trick to expand her mana pool a bit more each day. As for what I'll be up to in the meantime, first I'll make a friend. Next, I'll make some tracks, and the sooner the better. The goddess dropped me off in the middle of the wastelands. Then finally, one day, I'll make myself a place where I could truly belong. That's the plan, at least. Time to make some magic. So yeah, not much else to say there. I think this could be could be interesting, but I don't know if I have a lot, a whole lot to add to that one. It seems like another one where the protagonist essentially has an overpowered power, you know, with a kind of a flimsy limitation. But I will say that the art, the illustration of the protagonist is cute. For you know, sure, yeah. So it, it is that, so we'll see what it adds to this type of premise that others uh, have already explored. For sure. And then next up, we have The Invincible Little Lady, uh, which is a light novel written by Chatsufusa uh, with illustrations from Fumi. And on her deathbed, a sickly young girl wishes to be reborn with a strong body that will never succumb to anyone or anything. Lo and behold, her wish is granted. Upon reincarnating into another world as Mary Regalia, she discovers her new body has maxed out attributes from physical strength to defense, even magic. But wait, this isn't what she really wanted. All she longed for was a normal life. Baffled by God's choice to grant her wish in this most unexpected way, Mary tries to spend her days as uneventfully as possible. The hitch is, nothing's harder than living a normal life when you're absolutely invincible. So this is definitely like a very like, this is like the definition of like a monkey's paw situation. I just think that's kind of interesting. Could be cute, could be interesting. But then next up, we have The Mythical Heroes Otherworld Chronicles, which is a light novel written by Tate Matsuri with illustrations from Ruriura Miyuki. Unexpectedly summoned to the world of Alitia from modern-day Japan, Hiro Oguro soon discovers this isn't his first visit. As the legendary hero King Mars, he once ruled the battlefield, conquered nations, and founded the continent-spanning Grant Zian Empire before giving up all memories of his hard-won glory to return home to his old life. Now he's back a thousand years after he left, and his legacy is in peril. After a chance encounter with Princess Elizabeth, Von Grantz draws him into a cutthroat struggle for imperial succession. Hero must don the mantle of the war god once more. Can he live up to his own legend now that Aletia needs him again? And I'd say a pretty typical, like, very high fantasy kind of thing. Admittedly, I'm not always very interested in, but I do like the character designs, at least. They look kind of nice. Yeah, I guess the thing here is that this guy was Zizekai into this world before, and now he's Zizekai again, and a thousand years have passed in this world. So that's kind of the iteration of like how the world has changed since he's last been there. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the most interesting thing about it, but otherwise it's just like, eh, like I could take it or leave it, honestly, but that's just me. Uh, next up, we have Rebuild World, the manga. Kirihito, Ayamura, and... Not Na- house uh, are credited with the original work, and then we have uh, Jin, Yish, and Cell credited with original character designs, in which uh, hunters brave the ruins of a long-dead civilization at the behest of the corporate city-states who thrive on its Tehitris. 
Amidst the decay lie powerful artifacts of ancient technology, eclipsing anything the corporations can develop. Uh, for a few successful hunters, the search for these relics is the road to untold riches. For most, it's a shortcut to slaughter at the hands of mutant bioweapons and robotic sentinels. And for those trapped at the bottom of society, it's the only way out. Akira is uneducated, underfed, and unprotected. Just another homeless kid in the sprawling slums between the walls of Kugamayama City and the deadly wastelands which surround it. Relic hunting offers his only hope of clawing his way to a better life outside the slums, but his first desperate foray into the ruins uh, threatens to end his brief life until he meets a mysterious incorporeal woman named Alpha. So I think, I feel like there's a lot going on here, and I feel like this is like an interesting sort of like fantasy sci-fi thing that I could think I could get into. Um, the cover alone, I think, is actually pretty cool, and I think if I were like at a bookstore and I found this, like I'd, I'd pick it up and skim through it. And then, uh, last but not least, we have Campfire Cooking in Another World with my absurd skill, Sui's Great Adventure, with Momo Futaba and Ranaguchi credited for the original work, with original character designs by Masa, and apparently this is a spinoff of Campfire Cooking in Another World with my absurd skill, and we have Sui, the adorable slime, as the star of the spinoff. Uh, we join our own intrepid newborn in the middle of a great forest, its cowardly master attempting to make his way through to the other side, read on to experience the forest from a different perspective, spanning between meals and griffins to potions and more. But be careful, children tend to get lost, especially in a dense and confusing woodland. So I, I'm not sure off the top of my head if we've like mentioned the original series of this on the show before, because uh, it didn't like particularly like spark any memories in me. But uh, I mean, in general, I'm, I'm totally up for I mean, I guess that time I got reincarnated as a slime is another series about a slime creature. I mean, we, they have a lot of knockouts of that time I got reincarnated as a slime that are also about slimes. So, <laughs> so I, I guess it's obviously it's been done before, but I don't know. It's a fun little like idea for a premise that I could see why there'd be other knockoffs of it, you know? Maybe not as popular as like the villainous trend, but I'm sure there's definitely more than one of these kinds of series. Yeah, there's, there's been a few, I believe. We've talked about some of them. For sure. But yeah, I think it's just interesting that this series seems to be popular enough to publish a spin-off manga of it, too. So it might be one worth checking in on or taking another look at. Maybe. Even if we didn't really spotlight it before. So... I was just curious. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think some of these J Novel Club titles are actually pretty interesting. Um, honestly, I think Reincarnated as an Apple is like the most interesting one, and I think has the most potential to be like the best one out of all of these, honestly. Yeah, I think it's, you know, of course, with the premise as asserted that it's going to stand out the most. And also the cover art illustration designs look very charming and cute too so it definitely sounds like it rings the most new to the table in terms of like the selection of titles mm -hmm. and it otherwise fall into you know kind of genres that we've seen like novels uh explore before we've seen manga explore before yeah and so it's like hard to find something new to say necessarily about like oh this is the different iteration that you're doing this time but you know this one again there's a lot of reincarnated as whatever stories but again when you have the idea of reincarnating your character something really absurd inherently there's going to be some novelty that makes you curious to want to check it out and see how they handle it no for sure i agree but yeah, I think that's going to be about it for licenses, Lum, if you want to head on to some industry stories. 
Yeah, so probably the bigger publisher-related industry story is that Penguin Roundhouse has expanded her partnership with Dark Horse to begin distributing single issue comics and manga. Uh, it's basically Dark Horse and Penguin Roundhouse have established an exclusive worldwide multi-year agreement for the sales and distribution of Dark Horse backlisting issue comics and manga and direct to market comic shops and you know direct market stores are like comic book stores that receive and reverse from certain distributors similar from other like bookstores and mass stores. like these are like these like specific comic shops so basically this partnership allows Starburst to stock single issue comics and manga directly in these comic shops it basically kind of expands the company's current partnership where Penguin and Impulse is already selling distributing Dark Horse's trade books and grabbing all the bookstores now. They're also expanding those operations to direct market comic shops and they're expanding the type of the titles to be these single issue comics as well. So yeah, I mean, the Penguin Random House Dark Horse uh, Alliance partnership has continued to expand and yeah, well, we'll see like what this leads in terms of like actual single issue manga being published by Dark Horse. You know, they obviously did it back in the day with some of their titles, like the more but obviously not much recently we'll see if like they might experiment with that more now but yeah it's just like, an interesting expansion of the partnership to now like to be able to directly get their titles in comic shops direct market comic shops through their prh distribution so next uh, an interesting thing in terms of things that might have ramifications for their you know japanese manga artists and just freelance artists and creators in japan is that there has been like a new invoice filing system that will be implemented in October 2023 that a lot of people in creative industries in Japan are not happy with because under the proposed new system invoices will only be considered verified if individuals file them using their real names and those names will be accessible to the public via national database and that's you know a big conflict of interest for a lot of creators who like are using pseudonyms under which they're publishing their work and they want to keep their real names private and so that affected a lot of manga artists, a lot of VTubers, a lot of uh, just a lot of creative people who like try and keep out of the public eye and create their work like under under pseudonyms. They don't want like the real name, real information about them really getting out there. There hasn't just been a lot of details regarding how the system's going to work for people in pseudonym heavy applications. People are using pseudonyms. Apparently, the Ministry of Finance in Japan is just not really thinking about countermeasures for privacy-related issues. Like, they don't believe that this name versus name is, like, giving out highly risky personal information. I mean, they chose real names over addresses or phone numbers uh, as a point of identification because they didn't think it was specific enough to cause, like, a privacy complication. And the database is open to, like, commercial use to allow companies that deal with a large number of clients to verify invoices and badge and identifying them one by one and they just don't have any desire or plans to change how this system is going to work. So, you know, critics, of course, say that the system prioritizes convenience for large corporations or individual privacy, which in the Ministry of Finance rep's own words is basically what they, they've said. It's like it's for the convenience of the companies to verify these invoices, you know, more easily. 
So, you know, it's voluntary to file verified invoices with freelancers are strongly incentivized to participate in the system in order to retain work. So if you, like, don't follow the system, you might not be getting more work. And of course, the system also subjects invoices to consumption tax, which puts a heavier burden on freelancers and sole proprietors who previously, you know, they were operating under tax exempt statuses. So, yeah, this invoice system, it's causing conflict of interest in terms of keeping people's identities private and also now subjects them to like heavier taxes so it's just not a great situation for freelance artists in japan right now so that affects a lot of bonk artists uh it affects a lot of again just freelance uh creators and we'll see like how the situation will pan out whether there'll be some continued pushback the system as it's been proposed will be adjusted there's still time for that to happen since it's not planned to be implemented until next october but yeah this is definitely a developing story that be keen to keep an eye on in terms of ramifications potentially for artists in japan now, moving on to, like, interest pieces, we have, like, a very odd story here about kind of a French publisher that basically took it upon themselves to make the world's largest book by basically compiling the first 102 volumes of One Piece in an all-in-one edition that altogether is 21,540 pages. Jeez. And they made 50 of these books to be sold as avant-garde art pieces, <laughs> and Apparently, these were made by the artist Elon Manowak. And basically, the idea of it was just described as this is a materialization of an ecosystem saturated by media. And the idea is like, oh, it's a commentary on piracy and online fine culture. Like, this is quantifying the amount of content that is out there and being consumed and just putting it like in a physical form of like, what readers do when they're like pirating uh, a work like just how much content how big that media footprint is and like the aim of the book is that the one piece vanilla space is a product of this expanded digital production world it aims to shift the understanding of digital comics from a qualitative examination of the formal possibilities of digital comics to a quantitative reappraisal of comics as big data and so, I mean, the artist Matawak has done controversial work for comics before. Like, he remade Mouse by portraying the characters as cats instead of mice. And like just like in that example, he's run afoul of copyright infringement because he's basically taking other people's art and work that he doesn't own and just like slightly modifying it and passing it off as his own. So again, like the idea is like they're pub they published this as an art piece, but then they also sold the books. Uh, so they basically like, sold the books that contain what is one piece the manga, like copyrighted material of One Piece. Well, the spine art is all art from Ichiro Oda uh, that they are using here. So they're they're selling pirated manga, uh, even if they're saying like, oh, the the excuse here is that it's not copyright infringement because no one could possibly read this book because it's too big. Okay. But the thing is, <laughs> it's not practically. It's hard to read the book, but it's not impossible to like read it. And again, it's still like you're publishing pirated media right media that you don't have the rights to and you're selling it just based on the name on the ip of one piece like th- that is the entire appeal of like why people bought this you sold each of these books for 1.9 euros or 1893 dollars a piece and you made all your money up on this 
by the time Shui commented on the situation and that this entire thing was unauthorized and this was an unofficial product because the official French publisher won't be this not whatnot. So this entire argument is pretty hacky. And it feels like this artist like really likes to try and slightly modify comics or do these big stunt things with other people's comics and then try to pass it off as like, oh, this is my art. This is transformative. And it's like, I don't know if this is transformative enough when you're just selling basically a big compendium of all of One Piece that is just all of One Piece created by Hichiroda, published by Shoeisha that you do not own, <laughs> even if you created this book. That is not enough to justify this as like your work of art that you can sell. I don't believe any of his arguments whatsoever. Like, this just sounds like he wants to make money. Like, like it sounds like he's really, really reaching to try to make an argument here. It really is such a reach. I appreciate the stunt of trying to compile all of One Piece into a giant book, but to go out and then try and sell that book when you have no right to, uh, <laughs> you are just engaging in piracy at that point. That's not a commentary on piracy. You are just <laughs> selling pirated media. But if I say it's a comment on piracy, it's not piracy. No, it's, it's <laughs> R2C. Yeah. Uh, so it is just an amusing, ridiculous little story that I thought would be fun to comment on before we get into official One Piece media news. And that continues to be the continuing success of One Piece Film Red, which has recently topped Weathering With You to be the number seven all-time anime film in Japan, and it's continuing to climb at the Japanese box office, uh, having sold, you know, about like 11 million tickets at this point, like 15 billion yen worth of gross, like over 103 million US dollars. So it is uh, just continuing to to the climb in its box office sales, far and away the most successful One Piece film as a Japanese box office and internationally just based on the Japanese box office. So that definitely puts a lot of expectations, a lot of uh, hype and weight on when this film was going to come out internationally and come out in the US, how well it could do. But yeah, I mean, it is a, it's a runaway success to be now in the top 10 all-time anime films in Japan. So very, very telling. And one of the films that bumped off off the list and its rise was Evangelion 3.0 and uh, sadly here in North America when th- that film came out we did not get a chance to see it in the theater because it went straight to Amazon Prime but now thanks to G Kids Fan Events we are going to get that chance it'll be screened in US theaters uh, on a three day event from December 6th 8th and 11th and it was only going to be shown in English subs Japanese reading the subs which is interesting because there is a dub for the film. But regardless, yeah, the film is being released in US theaters, so finally we'll get a chance to see it on the big screen, which, considering the, the scale spectacle of the film, I'm definitely glad to get a chance to see it. Especially since, you know, all the other films in the Rebuild quadrilogy did get shown in theaters, so it was only right that the final film does as well. So, very, very glad to revisit the film on the big screen come December. Mm-hmm. Now, speaking of Amazon Prime, actually, it was announced just recently that TMS is going to be producing a new Lupin special that is not only going to be produced in cell shaded CG, but it's also going to be a crossover with Cat's Eye. That's right. We are getting Lupin the Third versus Cat's Eye, and that'll be debuting uh, worldwide exclusively on Amazon Prime Video next year in 2023. And it should be noted that the announcement didn't reveal like the length of the anime, but I'm, I have to assume this is going to be like probably like a 40 minute to an hour special or something. I can't imagine this will be like a full series or anything. It could be like a film. Yeah, it could be like a feature length thing. We never know. 
know. But um, yeah, I think this is interesting. I do think it's kind of cool that like we're getting a Lupin thing that's basically going to be animated like the same way that like Dragon Ball Super Superhero was sort of in the sense that it's CG. Uh, I guess. Mm, I mean, it, it looks like it's kind of going for like a mix of like 3D that is supposed to kind of look like it's 2D a little bit. Not as effectively, though, as a superhero. Like, it, you can really tell that it's CG. Yeah, I for feel, sure. Mostly. Like, it, it definitely is not as stylized and cartoony looking as Ubon the First. So, yeah. And that's a big point of complaint. Like, it's very obviously CG, but uh, I feel like they're trying to, with the character designs, find a middle ground or like have the loop on designs like match Sekasa Hojo's designs for Cat's Eye a lot more closely so yeah that's also noticeable in terms of how the characters look but yeah I mean I'm a fan of uh, Cat's Eye so I, well, I appreciate that uh we're getting this crossover that honestly I'm surprised has taken like 40 years to do basically <laughs> between Lupin and Cat's Eye to have like you know these teams competing going against each other and yeah that's gonna be a lot of fun I also appreciate that uh, Lupin's donning his pink jacket again he just doesn't get a chance to do that a lot but it makes sense considering <laughs> when the Parts 3 anime and the cat's eye anime were concurrent so if they had a crossover back in the day you know it would be with pink jack lupons so that's pretty cool i appreciate that little touch there uh yeah so I'm, I'm very excited for this i think this is a very unique idea for a crossover mm-hmm. i mean honestly like i mean i myself i can't say that i've really interacted with cat's eye very much i mostly know it through its rock and theme song that is a really good opening theme by the way and uh i don't know like when i first saw this my first thought was Man, I really want that Lupin versus Kaito Kid special that they joked about. It'll probably never happen, but like a guy could dream. Because <laughs> when they, you know, made the joke about that at the end of the Detective Clone movie, they said like, "Oh, Lupin versus Kaito Kid coming like twenty something, like ten years away or something." And of course, it never happened. But you know, they should have. They should have played that up, and I think that would have been fun. But alas. But still, even though I'm not really very familiar with Cat's Eye, like, I'm not opposed to checking this out. Though I, I will admit, like, we just mentioned it a bit ago, but it is really hard to, like, get excited for this particular when, like, Lupin the First does exist. And, like, just judging from the trailer for this alone, like, you know, again, like, I'm gonna wait and see, like, when it comes out. Maybe it'll be better than the trailer makes it look out to be. But, like, it is hard to accept this when, like, something as good looking as the first exists. Because, like, the animation in that is, like, so top notch. And it's, it's just kind of hard for me to accept something lesser than that i guess at least comparatively i don't know yeah I mean, i'm sure it'll be fine but it, it does feel stiffer it's not as cartoony and stylized so yeah it's not quite at the same caliber that you i feel want for the lupon project but might be the right middle ground medium for a cat's eye crossover but it, it's a shame that they couldn't just have like both designs and abilities coexist in the same environment and world like the lupon conan crossover movies where it's like you know, you just have the Lupin cast and their regular character designs direct with the Conan cast and their regular character designs. And you just accept that as, as the world, even though the Lupin characters look so different from the Conan characters. Yeah, they're not as pointy. But it's, it works fine <laughs> in 2D animation. But I don't know, maybe in 3D, it stand out more. Yeah, I, I hope that doesn't come off like I'm diminishing the work of like probably hundreds of people who worked on this. I don't want it to come off that way. I'm just saying that like, just judging from the trailer that we've gotten so far, like, Lupin is the kind of franchise where I kind of expect sort of a level of like sort of cartoony sort of like expressive animation from because I feel like that's where Lupin is at its best and I'm not entirely sure if we're going to get that from this special in particular. 
but we'll see. I'll still check it out. Yeah, I mean, again, I'm I'm very much looking forward to this. It's a really fun idea. I got to see like something weird in the cat's eye too, in particular. That's that's great to see. So yeah, very excited. So another film project for a classic anime franchise I'm very excited about is Wars of Size is getting a new anime film, Ooh. which is really, really exciting. And we don't really know whether this is like meant to be a remake of the series or it's like going to be like a new story set in the span of the series. But considering it shows Oscar and Marie Antoinette on the poster, it has to probably take place sometime during the series if it's not a remake. But regardless, you know, Love Rose size glad to see a new anime project for it and it is the perfect time to announce one considering the 50th anniversary of the manga was earlier this year so very much excited for this to come out and hopefully we can see it on the big screen when it comes out over here now, in terms of other exciting shoujo adaptation news, Kimi no Koke, the you know classic romance story manga, is getting a live action show that's going to be streaming on Netflix starting next March. And yeah, it's going to be a joint production between TV Tokyo and Netflix. The director will be Takiko Shinjo, who also directed the live action adaptation of Girl in April. And scripts will be done by Hayato Miyamoto. A co-director will also be Takeo Kikuji, who also directed the live-action Tokyo Alice adaptation. And yeah, I mean, Give Me Do okay is a series I need to get back to, but I really enjoyed what I read about it. And I think it will translate really well to live-action. So yeah, really keen to check out how the, the live-action turns out. In terms of other Netflix news, uh, we're getting some sequel seasons to some beloved franchises. Well, I don't know the way the house was in anime was as beloved as the manga, considering how limited the animation is. But regardless, it seems to have done well enough to get a second season that is going to be hitting in January 2023. And, you know, I enjoy the comedy of house husbands, even if the anime isn't the best, you know, it, it still can be a fun watch. But what is really a fun watch is Agretzko, and, you know, the final season, the fifth and final season, is coming to Netflix on February 2023. So, yeah, it's going to be an uh, end of the era. Like, Agretzko is finally coming to its end, which gives me incentive to finally catch up in the entirety of the show, uh, start to finish, in preparation for when the final season comes out. But, yeah, I mean, I feel like a lot of people have been less enthusiastic with Agretzko with each successive season, just based on, like, my impressions of what I've heard people talking about it, but I think the series is still very much beloved, and I'm very much curious to see how they bring the show to a conclusion, and how the Retzko hideout relationship is going to pan out, so very much looking forward to that. Yeah, Gretzko is definitely something that like I've been meaning to get to for a while, and I just haven't gotten to. It's definitely on my list. I still really want to check it out. It's, it's, it's always looked really, really fun. Hey guys, Colton here. Uh, I am going to be re-recording this small section of the podcast because we have one or two updates on Bleach, Thousand Year Blood War. And originally, this section of the show where we reported on that news contained a lot of speculation on Lums, and that quite honestly isn't really relevant anymore. Because at first, uh, Lum noticed that Bleach was set to expire on Hulu, but we also know that uh, with certain titles on Hulu, 
that seem like they're set to leave the platform. That doesn't end up usually happening. This commonly happens, I think, with a lot of their bigger stuff, such as like, you know, uh, the big like Fox animated sitcoms or shows like American Dad. It'll say on Hulu that like, oh, this will expire in like a few days or whatever. But I'm assuming they get their licensing or whatever in order to be able to keep those shows on the platform. And the same happened with Bleach. Bleach is still on Hulu. Um, Not only is Bleach still on Hulu, but basically after weeks and weeks of really just a lot of unnecessary like anxiety and worry on the side of Bleach fandom because uh, it was announced like a while ago that like Viz was going to be simulcasting Thousand Year Blood War. We just didn't know exactly where and uh, that really just ate up Bleach fans on the inside for weeks because uh, there were a lot of rumors and speculation going around that again really caused a lot of unnecessary uproar and worry. Uh, just in my opinion anyway. Um, but yes, it was confirmed by Viz Media that Bleach Thousand Year Blood War uh, will be streaming on Hulu in the US and internationally via Disney+. Plus. So that's where you can watch Thousand Year Blood War when it's out in like two days at the time we're putting this episode out. And yep, that's where you can watch it. So yeah, I'm I'm happy that people know where they can watch Thousand Year Blood War. That's cool and everything. Also, another detail about Thousand Year Blood War that we originally were going to uh, report on is that Thousand Year Blood War is set to be a four core series, uh, which means it'll probably end up somewhere between being 48 to 52 episodes, somewhere in that range. So it'll air for about a year, right? I guess I should say it'll be a split core. So I'm, I'm assuming it'll air for like two cores and then take a break and then air for another two cores. That's how I'm assuming things are going to go. Uh, so there'll probably be a small break at some point. But yeah, I think it seems like they're going to give just enough time to adapt this arc because I know this arc is very, very long in the manga. I think it's like 200 something chapters. So yeah, I'm genuinely hoping that Bleach fans end up getting what they wanted because from everything I've been hearing about Thousand Year Blood War and how involved Kubo is in uh, maybe wanting to tweak certain things that maybe he wasn't happy about with the arc, have certain fights go on longer or shorter or however he wants to retool the arc in some way, shape or form. It seems like he's pretty heavily involved from what I can tell. So that's pretty cool. Again, I'm happy for fans. Also, I should say something that that has happened since we recorded this episode of the podcast is that Bleach is not available on Crunchyroll anymore. Like if you search for it, you can't find it, which honestly, that's really disappointing. You know, I, I feel so sorry for anyone who was either watching the series for the first time or rewatching the series in order to get ready for, you know, this new season of the anime. I have no idea what could be happening behind the scenes in terms of like streaming rights. I can't even begin to like tell you how I think those work because I, I think it's clear that Viz still has like the rights to Bleach over here, but also they don't have their own streaming service. So that's why they have to, you know, put their stuff up on places like, you know, Hulu or Netflix or whatever. And, you know, something else we reported originally was that all of Naruto is leaving Netflix as well. Uh, I think at the end of this month, by the 31st. And yeah, so I don't know what's going to happen to Naruto either. I personally don't believe that Naruto's going to be leaving Crunchyroll, especially considering that, you know, they're still streaming Boruto at this point. Which is to say that Bleach leaving Crunchyroll seems like an anomaly in this case, because, like I mentioned earlier, it's going to be streaming on Disney Plus internationally outside of the US. So 
I don't know if that means Disney came in, threw enough money at Viz and was like, hey, we'll stream Bleach. And then Viz was like, okay, Crunchyroll, we're, we're, we're done doing business with you. I don't know. This is genuinely, I have no idea how these licensing things work when it comes to like Viz streaming their stuff specifically. Because again, they don't have their own streaming thing. So they have to stream their titles on other places. So I don't know. Things are pretty weird right now. It's really weird to not see Bleach on Crunchyroll anymore because like, I have to assume that's like one of their most watched titles on that service. And it's just really weird to think like how, oh, Disney probably came in again through enough money at Viz to just be like, hey, we'll stream Bleach. Don't worry about it. So I don't know. The streaming bidding wars or whatever you want to call it, it's just something that I can't really wrap my mind around. I don't know how any of this works, but I at least just wanted to let you guys know what was going on. Because again, when we originally recorded and reported on some of this news, uh, we had a lot of speculation at the time, or I should say, Lum had a lot of speculation at the time that, again, just wasn't really very relevant anymore. But I still wanted to let you guys know like what was going on and let you guys know that we at least now know where Thousand Year Blood War is going to be streaming in the US. So uh, for those of you who were, for whatever reason, worried about like where it was going to end up, it will be on Hulu in the US. And once again, Disney Plus streaming, I'm assuming the rest of the world. Uh, I think that's how that's going to go down. And uh, by the time this podcast is up, that'll be premiering in like two days, I think. I think that comes out on the 10th. So yeah, I'm genuinely excited for Bleach fans. And hey, I might even check out the first episode myself, because honestly, my feelings on Bleach aside, my unresolved feelings with Bleach aside, I can't say that I'm not kind of interested in seeing how this is going to go. And I can't not say that like I haven't been kind of excited and nostalgic for it. So yeah, that's basically about it for all the Bleach news. And uh, we're just going to cut right back to the show. Now, that makes it all the more satisfying and reassuring to see that Crunchyroll does not have a monopoly on all the big new shows that are coming out in the anime world and in the final anime season. Because one of the biggest, for me and for a lot of people, is the New Year's Yatra adaptation and... That is going to be going to High Dive. High Dive, Sentai has picked it up. They'll be hosting the simulcast for it starting on its premiere date of October 13th and onwards. So, I mean, I'm very much glad to see that it's not falling under the Crunchyroll umbrella, especially for reasons as I'll talk about a little bit later. But High Dive is continuing to make some really strong pickups every season. They get like one of the most notable shows at least every season now. And that's keeping the competitive with Crunchyroll. And I'm, I'm glad to see that so here's Yatsa is going to be like one of their it shows for the fall season and I'm, I'm glad for it I'm very much looking forward to watching the new series on there now in terms of other like anime updates other things getting like second seasons you know and also other things uh, we just have more information about so we talked about how me and Roboco is getting an anime adaptation we have more information about it it's going to be a short form anime like five minute length episodes I'm going to premiere starting on December 4th on TV Tokyo it's going to be directed by Akitaro Daichi who has done a lot of like classic comedy anime called Fruits Basket and Kodacha and it's going to be directed at Studio Gallup and scripts will be by Sierra Oba designed by Yuko Ebara 
and art direction by Manaikiyama. So yeah, I think that, you know, uh, it got a solid staff behind it and the short form format seems like it'll fit Roboco well in terms of like the length of its stories and episodicness and whatnot. So yeah, we'll, we'll see how it turns out. Hopefully the animation won't be too limited. I mean, at the very least, comedic timing, I think, should be pretty strong. I hope so, yeah. With the experience of the crew involved. So yeah, I'm just hoping this adaptation turns out well. And as a Robocop fan, I'm very much looking forward to watching it. Hopefully we will get like a kind of official simulcast for it over here. Even if it's a short form series, I would like to check it out for sure. Mm, Same here. Now, in terms of other things getting sequel anime, sequel series, we've got a announcement that Angel's Manga's Bride is getting a second season, which was a little bit of a surprise because, you know, it's been about five years since the first season, which when I checked that, I was like, oh, man, has it really been that long? But yeah, no, um, we're getting a second season for Ancient Mangus' Bride, and uh, it's a good timing considering next year will be the 10th anniversary of the manga. Uh, the new season's going to stream in Japan and Amazon Prime Video. I don't know if it'll stream on Amazon Prime here in the US or it'll go to Cartoon like the first season. But yeah, it's going to be keen uh, to check that out. And this new season's going to add the college arc of the manga. And yeah, I mean, I've been meaning to get back to Angel's Mangus' Bride for a long time, and this announcement of the, the new season definitely has me itching to do that, especially since it will be the 10th anniversary of the series next year. It's a good time to, to revisit it, to explore it. So yeah, great to see new season come for Angel's Mangus Bride. Also very glad to see Girlfriend Girlfriend get a second season. You know, the dub recently came out for that. I've been enjoying revisiting watching it. It's just a very funny show. And so, yeah, I'm just glad to see, like, it's, it's getting a second season. It'll probably come out sometime next year. And, yeah, always enjoy Hiroki since here. I love this funny uh, comedy about, like, this polyamorous truple. And then these other characters trying to get involved in it. So, yeah, uh, I enjoy the show a lot. Very glad to see it's going to get uh, another season. As I am excited to see a new adaptation of more of the, the Rascal Does Not Dream series. We're getting a new anime project for it that'll be adapting the eight and nine novels in the series Rascal Does Not Dream of a Sister Wintering Out and Rascal Does Not Dream of a Knapsack Kid. And I don't know how related the stories of these particular novels are to each other, but considering that Rascal Does Not Dream of a Dream Girl adapted two novels into one film, I'm expecting that, you know, this also will be another film project that'll be adapting these two novels but it hasn't yet been specified how long what format this anime project will be but you know Soichi Masui is returning to direct the series at Cloverworks and Masuhiro Yokotani is returning for composition and scripts Sadomi Tomura is returning to character designer so yeah I mean all the key creative staff is returning to work on the series and I'm very much uh, looking forward to it because I really enjoy the series even though yeah if you listen to our discussion of the Dream Girl film I had my criticisms but overall like uh, I'm a a fan and I'm definitely excited to see more of it Now, in terms of, like, new anime announcements, there's been some exciting developments. Kind of the big star child that's shown in Sunday lineup right now, Freyren, is finally getting an anime. And that is very, very exciting. Freyren has been a big hit ever since it first got published. They're very critically acclaimed as it's been published here in the US as well. And we don't really have too much information about, like, the format of the anime, the staff of the anime 
details will come later for it. But yeah, I think that Freyren getting an anime, it's already very, very popular as a manga. I think that it'll just increase its visibility, which I am excited about. And I'm excited to see it be adapted so well. Shaggy crew be winning. They stay winning. I'm happy for them. Indeed. I'm also very much excited for the Loving Yamada level 999 anime adaptation that is going to be coming out next year. And, you know, this is a series that's been publishing a manga mo that I really, really enjoy. Recently, manga mo caught up to the releases of the series and started officially doing it as a simulpop. And it's got a great staff behind it. It's got Morio Asaka, who is, was the director on Shiafuru, Karakapta Sakura, and My Love Story directing the anime at Madhouse. This Designs by Kuniko Hamada and Yasuhiro Nakanashi, who did designs for a couple cuckoos and Kaguya-sama. Yakusuro Nakanashi, who did scripts for a couple cuckoos and Kaguya-sama, is being in charge of the scripts for this series. So, yeah, I mean, just really great staff involved in the series. Uh, it makes me very, very excited for it. And, you know, a great pair of leading actors to play this main character is in our Milase Sakane, Kochi Ushiyama as Yamada. So, yeah, I'm, I'm very, very looking forward to this. I really enjoy this series. Meaning to catch up on Mangabo to the latest chapters, but looking forward to revisiting the early parts of the series in anime form with this adaptation next year. Another thing I've been looking forward to, and this is a project that's been in the works for a long, long time that I'm very excited to see become a full-fledged project, is Mecha Uede, Mechanical Arms. Uh, Pony Cannon is producing a full-fledged anime series based on Mecha Uede by Sai Akamoto, which, man, I remember when Akamoto launched the Kickstarter for the pilot of the series six years ago, back in October 2016, which I participated in, and I was really intrigued by Concept 1 to see like that come to life and yeah ever since then you know the pilot came out in may 2019 with english love soon after and then uh since then they've just kind of been working behind the scenes to take it from there to you know get it greenlit and produce as a full-length project and i'm really happy for them uh like it's like really testament to like the power of like independent artists and animators like teaming up to create a regional idea and then get that off the ground and just slowly over time build it up uh, to the point where you know it can become something even bigger and i'm really really happy for them i think that's super great in addition to this new anime project coming from echo way day there's also a manga adaptation that's currently running online manga uh an ebook japan which you know chapters coming out every thursday uh being done by yoshinuki yoka who is best known for doing the aria the scarlet anime manga so yeah and uh the manga looks pretty great for it as well so yeah very very happy to see echo way day kind of be greenlit and to like a full-length project and very much looking forward to seeing how it turns out and congrats again to Sayakumoto for their hard work and persistence in getting their vision and the project like off the ground over these years. Next, uh, we're going to be talking about stuff that is honestly it is like industry pieces maybe it should have been in the industry news section but you know they're they're also like anime related so it makes sense to talk about it after recapping all of this anime news but uh yeah first let us actually talk about like you know Crunchyroll having this controversy over kind of locking a lot of content that was previously 
you know, available to watch free behind their paywall of the subscription. So, like, a lot of titles in August started to go behind, you know, the premium tier. These include, like, El Hazard, Hero Bank, Caradato, Pichon, and Famous Skateers. And, yeah, so since then, it's become clear that Crunchyroll is kind of slowly starting to transition its catalog behind the premium paywall. So, at some point, there will only be a select amount of free-to-watch titles. And so ANN reached out to Crunchyroll for a comment and they basically said that, you know, we're still offering like a lot of hours of free uh, anime through our ad supported tire. And so like episodes are most popular stuff. Uh, we're still available to watch free with ads. And, you know, we do make new content available with free to ads with our seasonal samplers at the beginning of the season. But, uh, you know, our AVOD content will rotate and refresh regularly. Sometimes we're for Suns, which are most of the member vacations. So basically, you know, that last line is the most telling. It's like saying, like, you know, AVOD content is not going to be, like, the norm, the expectation standard anymore. Basically, they are going to be transitioned to treating, you know, AVOD content as, like, we are going to selectively have titles available free to watch with ads, but most of the catalog will transition at some point to be behind the premium paywall, only coming out of it sometimes for special occasions in uh, promotional stunts and stuff like that. So, you know, it's very much kind of PR speak to kind of obfuscate the, the transition and strategy and how Crunchyroll is kind of like providing its catalog there. Which uh, the kind of double talk in like how they are handling their policies applies to this next story in an even bigger and more upsetting way. I mean, it is a big upsetting thing to like kind of remove the free access to like this volume of anime that Crunchyroll used to offer that you could just watch free with ads. Yeah, but this is much more disgusting what we're going to talk about. Yeah, it's more reprehensible to hear like how they are treating uh, the creative talent who is <laughs> adding value to their work in the case of dub actors and producing dubs and stuff like that. So, you know, recently, Kyle McCarley, who, you know, prolific voice actor, but known best and most relevant for this uh, discussion as the voice of Mob in Mob Psycho, he made a video uh, and then made a tread on Twitter basically explaining that he most likely will not be reprising the role of Mob Mob and Mob Psycho Season 3 because Crunchyroll is not complying with his request that Crunchyroll meets with the Screen Actors Guild, you know, the American Federation of Television Radio Artists, like AFTRA, uh, just meet with union representatives to negotiate a potential contract on future productions. So it's not an issue of, like, money that he's not returning because he says that Crunchyroll was going to offer me about what I would have been paid on a union contract, maybe even more, but, like, and it wasn't even, like, he needed to be on union contract for this production. He said, I'm willing to do the show non-union so long as you actually just meet with union representatives to work out a plan to do future seasons future productions following sac guidelines and under union contracts but Crunchyroll wouldn't even dine to do that effort they wouldn't even <laughs> to make the attempt to just talk with union representatives about potentially signing on to have their duds be produced under sac contracts 
Uh, and so instead, they released a statement saying that they're going to need to recast their roles because, you know, we want to do a simul dub and want to produce the dub at our Dallas Christian Studios where we don't have to follow any union guidelines. And we have to, we want to do this like seamlessly per production casting guidelines quote unquote cheaply as possible fast as possible so we're gonna recast some roles so yeah again to so to speak it's like uh no we don't wanna even talk about the uh, dying the possibility of like having our shows be produced under SAG afternoon and all that which is important it's not just for job security pay thing but obviously you know it's about like benefits it's about like protecting actors by you know, making sure that they're not you know being put in situations where they have to perform at a level that'll hurt their voices like like, especially with shonen shows like Mob, you know, it's about like not being put in a situation where he's forced to scream for such a length of time he hurts his voice. You know, it's really just a transparent that they just want to hold the power to set the wages as they want and to basically be able to set the terms of the employment of actors as they please without any limitations that may be imposed upon them by following union rules, which are done in a way to protect the actors so they don't they just want to not avoid anything that will affect their bottom line and their desire to just produce these on their timeline they want to and at the budget they want to and it's especially reprehensible again considering like how big is this anime is uh and the fact that even the wages that are being paid now are just so low compared to the the value these actors are bringing to the work like it's, it was a big conversation with Jutsu Kaisen Zero that the actors are paid like hundreds of dollars for work on a movie that made millions of dollars at the North American box office which is just abhorred and that especially applies to work on like you know episodic anime TV where like actors are paid like less than a hundred dollars for their time on a, sh- on a show per episode uh, based on a two hour session like it's just absurd and there's like just no way around it like Crunchyroll is just in the bad for the situation for just not caring about the well-being of their creative talent of the actors who are producing creating these dubs for them and just not even wanting to meet to negotiate like that's the hashtag it's just a meeting they don't do want to have the meeting with Sagaftra to work on terms to talk about best practices to protect actors in these jobs to give them compensation and benefits that are well rewarding the value of their labor is just truly truly uh, reprehensible how they are handling the situation and it is just baffling also that they would prefer to like just completely balk at a meeting with the union rather than even just going through the motion of the meeting it's just absurd this is somehow worse than all that bullshit that happened with John DiMaggio earlier this year with Futurama and the revival coming to Hulu, honestly. Well, it's it's just as bad because it's the same kind of thing as like trying to beat the actor down to the point where they just relent and give in to their turns by not just refusing and threatening that, oh, we're going to replace you if you just don't follow how we want to do things. Yeah. But I mean, at least in the case of Futurama, they are still, I think, getting to record under Union contracts and so this is worse in that regard it's like Crunchyroll I mean a lot of dubs aren't being produced under union but Crunchyroll does especially have been union averse and uh, this is just kind of a tipping point of like they won't even make the effort to try and work something out try and compromise I can't say that I'm like 
surprised, but I am just kind of baffled at the fact that, like, Crunchyroll would rather just recast one, if not most of the actors on, like, one of their most anticipated shows of the season just to save a few dollars. Literally just to save, like, what culminatively is probably just a few thousand dollars based on these rates, if even that. And it's all really all just to maintain control and leverage and to set the terms. And it's just such bad fate policy. It's bullshit, it's quite honestly. disgusting how they treat these people, again, who are, like, responsible for giving value to their work. I've genuinely seen, like, people cancel their Crunchyroll subscriptions in response to this, and I say, you know what, good on them. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the stronger actions you can take because uh, the poor social media team, I mean, they might get harassed enough to the point where the bosses take notice, but yeah, it's just going to take a lot. It seems to like convince them to actually pay people what they're worth because like it's not just with dub actors but they're translators control uh, has had a, a bad uh, reputation with underpaying the talent actually involved in making their business possible i just don't understand like why you would give yourself like this much bad press it is just truly baffling like all he was asking for was a meeting you could just go through them it'd be shitty still but you why i don't understand why they didn't even go through the motions of having the meeting even if they knew they were going to turn it down any offers any ideas anyway they just decided not to play the game at all which honestly is just again it's just disgusting yeah it just shows that they just truly do not care or there's just like just some bad communication within Crunchyroll itself that like no one can, can figure out what the best course of action is and realizes what needs to be done to change the situation so they don't have bad PR like this so it's just very badly run how they're doing this. oh yeah just very badly how they're treating the people who are like making their work possible so it's terrible oh yeah to kind of close off on uh, some convention-related news, Women in Comics is going to be hosting Erica Friedman and uh, Rika Takashima at their convention at uh, Broncos Comic Con uh, on October 29th. So they'll mostly be talking about their work at Yuri Con, Erica's new book, By Your Side. So that'll be great. You should go out and check them out together. And Erica's also at also at New York Comic Con and will be an anime one. We'll see. So. If uh, check out her stuff there as well if you're going to go to those conventions as well. And then our final piece of news here that we're going to close off the show with is uh, just a little fun poll that Viz did about people's favorite works from Class 1A in My Hero Academia. Yeah, and uh, I guess I could go ahead and uh, read off the top 10 of uh, what people voted for here, starting from the bottom going to the top. At number 10, we had Hardening. Number 9, we had Invisibility. Number 8, Electrification. Number seven, Erasure. Number six, Zero Gravity. Number five, Dark Shadow. Number four, Explosion. Number three, Creation. Number two, Half Cold, Half Hot. And number one, obviously, One for All. So, I mean, one, two, and four are obviously belonging to the street most prominent popular characters. Makes sense why those parts are up. I like seeing Hiroshi's creation come in in the top street. I think it is like a very versatile, very useful ability. And I like the character, so I like seeing her ability be so high up. It's also a power that, like, takes a whole lot of work to use, too, because I think she has to, like, study the molecular, like, structure of the things that, like, she has to create, which I think is pretty cool. 
She has to find work to be able to create things. She can't just create things out of imagination. Yeah. She has to know how it works. So I appreciate that. I think a lot of the other quirks are like quirks that you would otherwise think are useful or belong to popular characters, right? So like Togiami's Dark Shadow, uh, Iraqi's Zero Gravity, Aizawa's Erasure, Kaminari's Electrification. You know, even though Hogwacker doesn't do that much, obviously invisibility is always a useful popular power. Nikirishin was hardening, right? So I think like it's interesting. I think it's sad that Ayama's Naval Laser came at the very bottom of 21. I think it's way more interesting a power than Tail. <laughs> Uh, from Hydro. <laughs> oh, man. Which is, like, lame. Or Shoji's dupli arms. But, alas, poor Ayama. You deserve the shine a lot more. Honestly, and I'm not just saying this because this was the power that I voted for, I'm kind of surprised that Sugar Rush isn't above Tail. Because that's the kind of power I want. I'm a huge, like... I love sweets so much. I probably eat a little too much, but like Sugar Rush out of any of these would be like the most useful power for me, honestly. Yeah, I mean, it'd be great to be able to like eat a bunch of sweets and then translate that into just pure power. So it give you a good excuse to overindulge your sweet tooth. My only question with that power has always been, if you had that power, does that mean you can still get diabetes? Is that something that the power combats or is that are you still at risk at that? Like, th- these are the kind of things I, I think about a lot. Yeah, I I, I have to hope not. Otherwise, <laughs> that really suck. Like, your quirk also <laughs> makes you so unhealthy. Oh, my God. That, uh, what, I, I can I can imagine present Mike introducing this power. Sugar rush, weakness, still at risk for diabetes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Did you have a power that you voted for? I think I voted for creation. I think that's the most useful power. When I was going through the list, because it actually took me a bit to decide, like, oh, what power would I want? Like, I think the first one I went to was Dark Shadow because I kind of thought, oh, it'd be kind of cool to have, like, a little shadow friend or whatever. But then I remembered, like, oh, wait, but then I'm at risk for going berserk and raging out on everybody around me. So I don't know if I, I don't know if I really want to deal with that. <laughs> yeah, I think the lamest power is still just Tail. Tail? Just like, it just has a tail. That's his power. Well, hey, look, to give him credit, he's clearly trained his tail. It's probably the strongest tail that anyone's ever seen. Right, but there are a lot of other characters in the MJ world with tails, but that's not the quirk. <laughs> it's like just so lame that his power is just, oh, I have a tail and it's uh, strong, I guess. That's kind of one of the things I've always loved about My Hero Academia is that like it is a world where like some people have powers that are better than others. Like not everybody's powers are like these cool, like useful things that you can use to like fight crime. Like sometimes you do just like have a tail or like you could shoot tape out of your elbow or whatever like I, I just i just love the like the variety of powers in the my hero academia world they go from like the most useful and cool to like the weirdest most obscure useless powers anyone could ever have yeah it's definitely one of my favorite things about the series honestly um but yeah i think that's about it for news indeed so we'll wrap up the show with some community shout outs 
I have a lot of stuff that's kind of a carryover from the last news episode that I'll get to in the middle here, which I realized after recording that I was like, oh, this would have made sense to talk about on this episode. I don't know why. I, I kind of just focused on all the Dragon Ball stuff and then I forgot, oh, this would have been relevant <laughs> to that. But uh, before we get to that stuff, uh, I just want to start off again by once again recommending the Tokotoka interview uh, on Shujiro Kobayashi. Again, it's just great to just get a intimate interview with the legendary art director himself, like see him kind of go and study landscapes and draw, talk about his craft again. I think that's a wonderful way to kind of learn more about the man and his work. In addition, I would recommend Trixie's uh, video on Shishiro Gobayashi that she did a few years ago. Kind of like the only big anti-tuber to really talk about his background work and how we brought environments to life. Talk about like the architecture that he would draw in his various series from Berserk to Utena and everything else that he, he worked on. So, you know, I think that was a great video of theirs. Uh, it also brings me to talk about one of the kind of things I was going to mention on the last news that I decided to save a later is that you know i also just want to recommend trixie slash the studio channel in general because she has officially retired from annie tube you know in her like retirement video she says you know she's kind of reached a place like where she feels like she's done what she can can't really make it more of a, a career and she has just other creative interests now collaborating with like her new roommates and crew that she lives with now it's kind of a bittersweet thing is like, you know, been following her videos from the Digibro days to now. But she really did make a lot of great content and did kind of kind of really create kind of the Annie to space as it is now in terms of like the type of critical essays and content that are being created. So she definitely has left behind kind of that still in its wake. A lot of people inspired by her work and then, you know, creating the space of Annie to as it is now. And so, yeah, it's just a, it's a bittersweet thing that she's kind of retiring from the scene, but she's still making content with her other collaborators, uh, like Mint Salad and on the, the Void Gages podcast and all that stuff. So she's really making stuff, but yeah, the, her channel, Yeek Studio, is now just being kind of retired and phased out, which, uh, comes and came at the end of like doing, you know, a big month of videos where she just did like a new video every day. So she went out with a bang. So I appreciated that. But yeah, uh, she's, now just working behind the scenes on the ASC Presents channel uh, and with the collaborators there like themselves. So yeah, again, enjoyed uh, all of her videos of years, some of her videos, uh, definitely had disagreements with, you know, it's been a very opinionated figure, sometimes a controversial figure, but still made a lot of good videos too and great analysis pieces. So I appreciated that. Now another long-running creative project that I've been following for a long time but recently uh, kind of retired or ended was the Carson podcast which was uh, just a great podcast that was kind of a retrospective of the Johnny Carson show interviewing guests and creative talent and writers and staffers on the Johnny Carson show talking about what it did for late night TV how it influenced them and their careers their memories of it and and even though I was never someone who like, you know, grew up on Johnny Carson, he was well before my time, I have a deep interest and fascination in the history of television in general. So this was just a great podcast to learn more about that and more about like the evolution of late night TV, evolution of the comedy scene on TV. And over like eight years, Mark Monkoff, you know, interviewed a lot of incredible people. He interviewed Gilbert Godfrey. Both Algina and Mike Reese on The Simpsons because they both worked on the Carson show. 
And yeah, just a lot of incredible, incredible people over the run of his show over 400 episodes. And I pretty like like his uh, second to last episode where he interviewed James Commissar, which was like a interview he wanted to get for many years. And he finally got it with him. James Commissar, like the Commissar collection, and, like kind of one of the premier like TV uh, historians, preservers of like TV, like props and artifacts. And I thought that was just a fascinating conversation about, again, TV history and like the preservation of TV history. Uh, and yeah, again, just what I liked about the show is just discussing these stories, just discussing like kind of the history of television, the comedy scene, and just kind of preserving these kind of stories. And uh, I really, really, really enjoy the show over the years. And it's kind of sad to see it come to an end. But I mean, it's just like an incredible selection of interviews with a ton of incredible people working in television that is just absolutely worth recommending. Another podcast that I kind of meant to recommend in the last news we did was one commenting on the the rights of the situation how that affects like international buyers in particular so Zan in Canada they did an episode kind of commenting on the situation with Mother's Basement Jeff and Yazi they basically just talked about like how Sony buying rights stuff how Crunchyroll buying rights stuff makes it harder to kind of import uh, especially hentai into Canada how it you know makes the process of purchasing stuff from rights stuff more difficult for Canadian buyers fans which i again i thought was an important perspective to kind of understand like oh man it's not just that the removal of hentai from right stuff makes it more convenient to buy hentai but it makes it like really really difficult to buy it if you're not in the u.s which i think it's interesting to talk about they also talked about like kind of use a situation and how that might work out and when it's airing on canadian tv and also the fact that apparently inuyasha is still not all fully available streaming in canada which is pretty bizarre for how important a show it was for the Canadian anime community back in the 2000s. That it, it's not all legally available streaming in Canada. So I thought they talked about a lot of really interesting topics, but especially that right stuff situation, if you want like a follow up on it, the ramifications of control buying right stuff, that's definitely a good listen for that. And uh, another thing that I meant to get to last time was, you know, Ray Mona's big Finding Saban Moon documentary, Finding the Tune Makers, like Sailor Moon Pilot, which, you know, I, what I loved about the documentary series was that she went out and interviewed, you know, a lot of the pre-creative people behind, you know, making the show. And they didn't know where the show was, but it was just interesting to hear their stories of just working in animation and their journeys to like making this project together. And, you know, I liked just the extra flourishes of how they she like would animate these scenes animate like her interviews and I, I really like that but you know again she did actually do it she actually did find the pilot and shared it in the documentary and then just recently put it up on Internet Archive and that's great like finally publicly it has been made available this two maker Salmon pilot which you know I I personally don't think it's very good but you know a lot of people are enraptured by the possibilities that could have been from the show based on the pilot. You know, I've seen a lot of fan art of it, a lot of people just appreciating that this novelty has been unearthed and like seeing an example of like what could have been. And I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that she really did find something that had been kind of lost to the public, but found it in like a very surprising place or perhaps unsurprising place in, you know, the Library of Congress. And also there she seems to have found a lot of other like hidden gems of like Americanized anime adaptation attempts perhaps most notably 
it seems that she has found like some more stuff about American live action Saint Seiya Project Star Storm, which is he's like a secret stories of Saint Seiya documentary coming up next. So very much looking forward to perhaps seeing that and then learning more about that production as well. But yeah, I think that her documentary was really fascinating uh, and contained some really fascinating interviews with some really interesting people who worked in like kind of the, the prime renaissance era of animation in the early 90s and contributed to a lot of really amazing projects. And I was very much entertained by that documentary and very much happy to see that she actually did find the pilot and I'm excited to see what other like lost gems that she has found in the Library of Congress archives. Very, very good project. And in terms of some newer stuff, uh, can you on like videos, retrospectives? I enjoyed Kai Zubin's recent video on Slayer's Return. And particularly what I liked about it is that he explored from the angle of like what makes that film have the reputation as like being the best Slayers film, perhaps like the best received Slayers project, which I found interesting, like just looking at the critical analysis of Slayer's Return and then also looking at like what makes that film work in terms of just completely being a silly parody <laughs> just doesn't take itself seriously at all in a way that even supports the normal Slayer's formula and yeah I appreciate that I don't know if Slayer's Return was my favorite like watching the videos you know really convinced the argument of like why it would be considered by so many the best film even though I think I'm still partial to Slayer's great but yeah very I always enjoy Kaiser Beam Slayer's videos you know he's a big fan of the franchise and uh, I always appreciate like his uh, analysis of what makes each installment unique and I think did a great job of putting a great context and analysis on Slayer's Return. Now, as far as other uh, videos I really enjoyed, I really like Comics Tropes' uh, recent video uh, on kind of a, his, you know, what I like about his channel is that he, you know, is a great comics historian, but he's also a creator of his own comics. And he talked about in his recent video, like his comics failure about a comic that, you know, he had an ID for, he had an artist for, and he had like an in with IDW. He had a connection with that he could have gotten the comic published, but he kind of messed up the opportunity because uh, he just made a mistake of being too much of a perfectionist being too slow with the work and just uh, losing the, the opportunity and then eventually just losing the partnership with the artist because he just wasn't as communicative as he could have been and I just thought it was a nice uh, reflection introspection on thing a lot of like artists face to like just you know the, the struggle of like being able to complete a project and the struggle of wanting to be the perfectionist with your work and then kind of like missing sight of what's most important which is like to be able to be reliable and regular with your work and find opportunities that way so i thought that was like a very very thoughtful video that I really got a lot out of. And I get a lot of this channel just in general. But I thought this one especially, I think, relevant and worth sharing. I just really, really appreciated it. And to move on to some newer stuff that I wanted to recommend. You know, speaking of like kind of artists creating their own self-published independent projects. You know, in response to all this recent stuff going on with HBO Max. And, you know, just the dire state, it seems, of uh, adult America animation in general just being put the kibosh on and just a lot of independent projects and the uncertainty of like whether they're going to be like written off like you know just the frustration over the fact that creators just have little say of how their works are treated there's been more of an effort to create more independent animation uh, collectives to reduce independent animation projects especially adult animation and uh, one of those projects is this noir buddy detective 
of comedy called Boxtown that Charlie Gavin, who a lot of people will best know for his comics about working in the animation industry on Twitter. I really enjoy those. But yeah, he's basically, you know, launched a, a new project with his like kind of new studio, Banded Mill Studios, to basically self-produce the pilot for like his own noir comedy. And it's just a fun story about like this, this kind of like a bad detective and like his good natured kid psychic who has kind of like this hidden dark side and has a lot of fun style to it a good aesthetic uh and vibe so i really think it has a lot of promise and potential and again i enjoy charlie's comics and sense of humor and the team has worked on a lot of just fantastic productions that reign the gamut of like smiling friends to pibby to all sorts of great shows so yeah i'm just very much in support of like independent animation projects and they're actually pretty close to reaching their goal of $15,000 for the pilot and they may already have reached that by the time that you are listening to this but of course you know it takes a lot of resources to make animation uh make an independent <laughs> animated film so I think they could continue to use more and more support and I want to see more independent projects get supported like this be made because uh, you really can't trust the studios a lot to take a risk on independent projects. Having like homegrown support like this is super important. And uh, we can see big success stories like from that. Like, you know, being Poppycat back in the day got like a big Kickstarter, produced a full length season of it, and then uh, eventually got a big second season that is now on Netflix. So you have huge success stories like that, but it really comes from the support of fans for independent projects. So yeah, like they're, they're almost reached their $15,000 goal, but like, uh, you know, there's still a lot of goals to reach that they could reach. And they still have to this Indiegogo up for two months so definitely choice and support if you believe in supporting like independent adult animation and find the potential and the premise intriguing in terms of other recent things I want the spotlight you know we talked a lot about One Piece in the show and recent results in the manga definitely invite revisitation to kind of like the earlier post time skip stuff so the Don My Favorite Podcast did a great podcast retrospective on the Fishman Island arc since that recently concluded its run on Tanami. Tanami got past that, so they had a good conversation on the arc with Grant, uh, and they basically talked about the, some of the pros, but also a lot of, you know, the weaknesses in the story. I think they gave a fair evaluation of the arc, and they also touched upon, like, the tie-in arc to the film Z, which I didn't like as <laughs> not much. I thought that it was a fine mini-arc. Isn't isn't that the one where like that girl that can like turn giant and she like turns giant into luffy yeah she like luffy accidentally swallows her and she goes giant inside of luffy so luffy becomes a giant it's it's so bizarre yeah i'm sure certain people were probably into that let's just say not to yuck anyone's yums but... gigantification <laughs> yeah but no God. I, I thought it was a good conversation on the Fishman Island arc in the anime in, in that little mini arc. And then I also want to shout out Sketch's uh, recent review of Goodbye Don Gleese. You know, there were a lot of really good like anime films that came out this September. Goodbye Don Gleese being one of them by Itsuko Ishizuka, who directed A Place for the Universe. And it is a very similar feeling story. I think Sketch did a good job discussing kind of what made it a good buddy adventure story, exploring kind of its themes of taking chances, stepping beyond the friendship between the 
main trio, how beautiful the visuals are, and how good the dub is, which I was interested to hear about because I saw the sub. So I really appreciated Taylor's work and uh, bringing attention to the film. So yeah, definitely check out, give that a read, and uh, check out the film whenever it's uh, available on home video. And then the last thing I'll recommend is that, you know, getting into the fall, there's a lot of new manga releases to look forward to. And what's always a great resource is ANN's, you know, manga guys. And so their fall manga guide has a lot of great uh, reviews and perspectives on a lot of the great new titles coming out this fall. Been enjoying reading through them, seeing what people are having to say about titles that I was interested in checking out and uh, being reassured that a lot of the ones I was interested in uh, seem to be really well liked. So it looks like a good collection of new releases coming out this fall. So definitely check out the ANN fall 2022 manga guide to get some consensus on like what new releases you should look out for and should maybe uh, check out and pick up and that about does it for all the community shoutouts I wanted to spotlight on this episode and as usual there's been a lot of great work coming in the anime and manga critical space that I try my best to keep up with and you know I save some stuff for later like in the case of this uh a lot of the shoutouts in this episode but yeah I'm just there's always a lot of great stuff to enjoy a lot of thoughtful analysis to listen to to read about and I really appreciate that and look forward to sharing even more on future episodes but for now I think it's time to head into the wrap up of the show for sure thank you everyone so much for listening to this episode of Manga Mavericks Uh, we hope you enjoyed it and uh, hopefully next time on our show uh, the plan is so far that uh, we are going to be doing another Simul Pubs roundup Uh, not only are we going to be talking about the latest series over at Shonen Jump and Manga Plus but we even got some Azuki titles to talk about so uh, I'm very much looking forward to finally getting to some of these new series and uh, talking about them next time on the show yeah yeah, I've been really enjoying uh, my dear Detective Mr. Case file, so really excited to finally uh, be able to talk about that next time. And there's been the new crop of Shonen Jump series, among the series are run the gamut of really interesting uh, premises, so definitely have a lot to say next time. Alright, but until then, uh, we're going to let you guys know where you could find us and everything that we do, as well as, uh, you know, everything to do with Manga Mavericks and stuff like that. So, uh, Lum, my good friend, where can the good people find you? You can find me at LumRomayasha on Twitter, LumRomayasha variety places like extra relation any list and letterbox readers you can find me there by the name you can read my reviews on mymores.com we got a lot of books coming in a lot of reviews planned to go out look forward to more in there it's all you can find the other podcast i do lum squad the yours the Yatsu focus podcast where we cover the wonderful and wacky world of rune kakashi's classic sci-fi rom-com yours the Yatsura. having a lot of fun covering the manga as can usually be released by viz media the movies is available on crunchyroll and on blu-ray by discotheque and so excited to talk about the new anime that is coming out in just a couple weeks here in mid-october we have so much to talk about in the world of yours the Yatsu right now it is so exciting we have so many great plans and we want to do a lot to cover the new show and get the word out there on the series and celebrate the old series as well i mean you're so excited for the new releases of the classic tv series next year so there's gonna be a lot for us to talk about we're very excited and if you want to listen to us talk about a classic anime of the of the medium definitely check us out on twitter 
Twitter at Limited Search Squad and YouTube. Search for our channel name in the search bar, you'll find it. And of course, we're on every podcast platform you can think of Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Anchor. We're also cross posting episodes on the Mountain Arts feed, and we post episodes early, sometimes uh, much early in advance, on the Mountain Arts Patreon. And if you like the art I make, the illustrations, thumbnails I do for our podcasts, or the illustrations and animations I make in general, you can find that stuff on my Instagram at SoArtWorks. All right, but as for me, I'm Colton. You could find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I also host and produce a lot of my own other podcasts outside of Manga Mavericks that you can find links to over at my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. Over there, if you click on the podcast page, you'll find links to literally everything I'm doing at the moment, even stuff that I used to do that I'm not doing anymore, and even a lot of guest spots uh, that I've done on other shows over the years that I've been podcasting. So if you want to listen to anything else I'm a part of, that's the best place to look over at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. And Check out all my other stuff if you want. Uh, but as for this podcast, you can find every episode over at mangamavericks.com. That's where we post every episode first, unless you're a patron of ours at patreon.com slash mavericks, where at the $2 tier in particular, you will have access to select episodes of the podcast depending on when we have them up. Basically, if we happen to have an episode of the podcast edited before it's supposed to go up on our main feed, we'll put it up on our Patreon at the $2 tier for patrons to listen to before anyone else. Uh, but admittedly, that doesn't always happen because it just depends on you know what we have done at any given time and our schedules and everything so that's why we only upload select episodes so if you want more reliable content admittedly you really should sign up for our five dollar tier where we post a new bonus podcast at the end of every month i mentioned it at the top of the show but by the time you're listening to this our newest bonus episode should be up where we basically talk more about gakuhote school judgment from nobuaki inoki and takashi obata like i mentioned again we did an episode of the main show recently about gakuhote with David from the Shonen Flop podcast, but we decided to basically talk more about Gakuhote on our Patreon with our good friend Maxi Bernard from Friendship Ever Victory, as well as the original Gakuhote pilot one-shot uh, that you could find at the back of Volume 3 of Gakuhote. And yeah, basically, if you enjoyed our Gakuhote episode, uh, think of that as a part two to our discussion uh, where we talk even more about Gakuhote in that episode than we did in our main episode. Uh, so you can find that and more, again, at the $5 tier over at patreon.com slash mavericks. We're uploading a new bonus podcast at the end of every month. And when you sign up for that tier, you basically get access to our backlog of other bonus podcasts that we've been uploading basically ever since we started up our Patreon. And just in general, you know, if you sign up for our Patreon, it's really the best way for you guys to support everything that we do here uh, because anything we make on our Patreon basically goes back to keeping the website up as well as the podcast and it just helps us with costs in general and again patreon.com slash mavericks uh, please sign up if you so wish we'd really appreciate it uh, but as for everything else you can follow us on Twitter at manga underscore mavericks or on Tumblr at mangamavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash manga mavericks uh, where we post different excerpts of the podcast including some exclusive content every once in a while again youtube.com slash manga mavericks please subscribe to us uh, email us anything at manga mavericks at gmail.com uh, do you have any thoughts on any of the news we covered on this episode any of the licenses anime just anything we talked about on this episode are you reading anything at the moment or are you reading anything that you want us to talk about on the show maybe email us anything about manga or the podcast or really anything we love getting emails from you guys because when you send us an email we'll read it on the show once again that's at manga mavericks at gmail.com please send us an email if you so wish 
But the most important thing, guys, is that you subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We're on so many different platforms at this point, but especially on platforms like Apple Podcasts and even Spotify, you know, wherever you can do this kind of thing. If you leave us a rating and a review, it really helps the visibility of our show on these platforms. And in general, we just love getting feedback from you guys, whether it be positive or negative, because we want to use that feedback to make the show the best it can be. But I think that's going to about do it for this episode. Uh, Once again, thank you guys so much for listening to this episode. This has been episode 216 of the Manga Mavericks podcast. And we'll see you guys next time for episode 217. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.